Well, I want to preface this by saying that this goes way beyond Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell's trafficking ring. It goes deep into the bowels of global power and it continues to present day. And so within the next few minutes, I'm going to be giving you some examples. I'm going to be talking about one or more governments. I'm going to talk about intelligence agencies. And the best way to describe what happened to me is to explain who Michelle Mrickless is. Because Michelle Mrickless is the father of my abuser. He died two years ago, but he was the CEO of Rapid American Corporation. So Rapid American was like his umbrella company. But to make it easier for um, your listeners to understand, we can compare Rapid American to Leslie Wexner's L Brand. So L Brand, Wexner kept Victoria's Secret and he kept um, Bath and Body Works and all of the other companies under that umbrella. And so under the umbrella of Rapid American, uh, Michelle and Rickless kept Shenley's Liquor, which he bought from Louis Rosenthal, who was Roy Cohn's partner, okay, who was Meyer Lansky's partner. And he got that from him. He kept the Riviera Hotel in Las Vegas, which that's where Meyer Lansky was. He kept McCrory's Five and Dime, which was a sort of the, the Woolworth company. That's kind of the, the parent name for Woolworth, which the main office of that was in Pennsylvania. And that's how he sort of selected Joe Biden a long, long time ago when he was only in his 20s. That's where he kept Elizabeth Arton, Botany 500 and all the other companies. So after World War II, um, the United States government had a secret intelligence program called Operation Paperclip. And I'm sure you're familiar with that, right? Yeah, from the CIA. Yeah. Okay. So what they did with that was they brought over um, 1,600 German scientists, but they were Nazis and they were engineers and they they were the the war criminals who were committing these atrocities against the Jewish people in the concentration camps. Um, and so what they did with Operation Paperclip was they brought them uh, into well they they kept some in the UK, some went to Israel, believe it or not. Some came to the uh, United States. Some came disguised as priests. That's why the Catholic Church is involved. And uh, others came in through South American countries. This is a, a better known uh, program. The lesser known program, and perhaps almost nobody until today will hear about it, is that they also brought in spies. So during the war, there were Zionist spies working uh, in British military, like Robert Maxwell, like Michelle Rickless. And the reason these guys were, were um, helped afterwards is because they needed people like the Nazi scientists. They needed people who had no moral compass, right? And so they brought in Michelle Rickless through Mexico and then from Mexico, they sent him into Ohio. And who's in Ohio? Leslie Wexner. They put him into Ohio State University, which is what the government did with the scientists from Operation Paperclip. They put them into Harvard, you know, and then they started the MKUltra program, which again is an umbrella program for many other programs that came under it. 
And so they stuck Michelin Rickless at Ohio State University, which is where he hooks up with Leslie Wexner. He becomes a student there and he also becomes a teacher there. Um, and this is sort of when he starts growing his Rapid American and it was sort of a joke um, because he became a Rapid American. Um, but, and so um, he and, and uh, Wexner um, did some business together and I'll get into my story. I just wanna just tell people who Michelle and Reckless is. He and Wexner did some business uh, at some point um, Rickless sold Wexner his learner shops, about 500 stores. And they sort of had this, this understanding and they all knew the same people. So what happened to me, and, and um, I've practiced this part so that I don't cry. What happened to me was that I was raped um, after a date and I missed my period. And I then found out that I was pregnant. And um, this happened at a time uh, that the company I was working for, I was an administrative assistant at a, at a publishing firm on 57th Street. And um, they had just moved to Connecticut. And so I, I tried to uh, commute, but you know, you know the city. And so it was a very difficult commute from Connecticut to back to New York, from New York to Connecticut. And I thought, well, I really can't keep this up. But simultaneously to that, I was an aspiring fashion designer and I had started to produce my own clothing line and I was selling it to local stores and I was selling it to wholesalers because in New York at that time, we still had a garment district. I had a woman named Zora in New Jersey in Tom's River who was making my outfits for me. Now she did not tell me that she had become sick. And um, so my bolts of fabric were just laying in her factory. And basically that put me out of business. So suddenly I am pregnant, mm -hmm. I have no job and I am out of business. So I, um, I needed $200 for an abortion. $200 changed the course of my life to present day. I went to my ex-boyfriend and I told him what happened and he didn't believe that I did not have consensual sex with the man who raped me. And so he denied lending me $200. Okay, and I'm, tr I'm trying not to cry. Uh, so then I went to the next person that was uh, close to me, which was my older sister. Uh, she's 14 years my senior. And I'd always looked up to her. She's like my second mother, at least I thought. So I told her what was going on now, I did not know that she had be begun to harbor hate for me uh, based on the fact that when I became around 12 or 13, her boyfriend started to look at me in a very weird way, right? But I'm a kid, I don't, I don't know what they're, how they're looking at me. And, and so I did not know that at some point she was going to make me pay. And the time came when I went to her for the $200 loan and she said to me, well, I'm not going to lend you the money, but I am going to take you somewhere where you can earn it. And um, then she sat me down and she explained to me what brothels were and what prostitution was. Mm. Now, I, yeah, I know. I was still in a state of shock. You know, I'm, I was raped. I was pregnant. I lost my job. I lost my business. I'm all alone in the world. I just find out that I can't trust my sister. 
and she's taken me now to, so I go into like this, just, you know, like a, a auto response. I follow her. She takes me to a, a bordello, a nine to five bordello uh, on, in the thirties on fifth Avenue. It was a nondescript building. And I am introduced to a man I named Warren in my, um, in my memoir, The Billionaire's Woman. And to me, he looks just like Johnny Carson. He's very well-dressed. He, you know, it was the preppy days. And so he's, he looks very preppy. He looks like Johnny Carson and well-spoken. And I think to myself, oh my God, I never thought a pimp would look like somebody's father, you know? And I was just kind of really shocked. Um, so what happens is my first situation happens and um, it happens, you know, the first day that I go there to work. And that I remember uh, going to bed that night and waking up the following morning. And I will always remember this because it's just, it left a lasting impression on me. I woke up the following morning and I, I had forgotten what happened the night before or the day before. And then it's almost like when somebody you really love has died and you forget, you sort of wake up and you think it's a normal morning. And so for a split second, I forgot what happened the day before. And then suddenly I remembered and it felt like that was, that was it. The, the, this doom, this darkness, this gloominess just enveloped me. And I knew that nothing would ever be the same. It was just, um, you know, I was broken. I was broken. So um, I ended up getting the abortion, but I lost me. You know, I, I had begun to find me a little bit through my designing and my selling my clothing, but I had been beaten as a child by my mother. And, um, you know, as you can see, I didn't have a very good sister. Um, and so there was just, I didn't, I, I felt this, immense shame and I no longer felt like I was a normal person so the world became normal people are over here and suddenly I belong to this area where I'm invisible and um, I did not understand how I would be able to walk into an office and try to get another job as an administrative assistant because I thought oh my god they're going to see this immense shame on me I, I can't present myself to a normal person and I couldn't. And so I was sort of left in that position. I just didn't know what, what else to do. So fast forward a little bit and that's where I meet Michelle and Rickless's son. I see him for about three times. During these three times, he tries to tell me that he's a billionaire, that he can do anything for me. And I, you know, I've already met very famous people by this point, and I don't want to have anything to do with anyone. And so I'm just, I just listen and I ignore him. And while this is happening, I meet and fall in love with a, with a guy, with just a normal guy. And I explain to him what's happening in my life. And he says to me, well, you know, just stop. I, I certainly make enough money. He was a bond broker just stop. And the boundaries of 
the men and what was happening to me were, were getting very confused and I wanted out of that world badly. And so I was like, yeah, I can do that. I can stop. And so I started, I started a, a great new life with him um, and it was perfect for six months. For six months, I went back to school. I was an art history major. I got a part-time job you know, administrative assistant at an office on 58th Street on Fifth Avenue. And then I'm studying for midterms on a Tuesday. And the midterms are going to be on Wednesday. And somebody is buzzing my doorbell. And now they're buzzing like their finger is stuck on it. And I was not answering the door because I, you know, I was alone in my apartment since I was a little concerned. But somebody was buzzing for so long that I finally went to the, to the intercom and, and oh my God, it was him. And, you know, he didn't know where, theoretically, he didn't know where I lived. He didn't even have my name. Okay. Cause he met me under an assumed name and I just completely freaked out. I remember um, having this feeling that I had gone from a world that had become expansive, right? I was beginning to get my wings. I was beginning to get to know me because during that time, I forgot what I looked like. I didn't even know what I looked like unless I was looking into a mirror. And if I wasn't looking at the mirror, well, then I forgot what I looked like. That's how lost I was. And so when he's downstairs in my apartment building, and I'm trying to tell him to go away. I'm just feeling like this, like just like, like a caged animal. I, I felt this, it was just like this feeling of my God, how did he find me? And so I screamed that at him through the intercom. How did you find me? How did you find me? And he says, um, well, I paid. Turns out that he bribed a police captain named Dave from the Upper East Side, the same police department that took care of Jeffrey Epstein and Leslie Wexner, the same police department. He bribed the police captain named Dave. He gave him $150,000 to find me for him. Mm. And now he is pleading with me. And I, I'm, just, I'm just beside myself. I can't believe that he has found me and he's just shattered my perfect world. So I'm trying to get rid of him and he promises to leave if I give him my phone number. Well, he had it, you know, he just, I guess, wanted to make believe he was normal. And so I give him the phone number because I really need to study. I'm very conscientious. As you can see, I write a lot of books. So I'm very conscientious. I work really hard and everything I do is meticulous. And um, in 90 seconds, my phone rings. And in those days, we still had um, phone booths on the corner. And he called me, I thought it was my boyfriend. And I answered the phone and it was him. And now he's insisting that I meet him at the Oak Room at the Plaza Hotel for lunch on Thursday, because he knew I was going to have a test on Wednesday. So he suggests Thursday. And just because I wanted him to just please go away, I agreed. So on Thursday, I'm on 58th Street and 5th Avenue. Um, the Plaza Hotel is on 57th Street and 5th Avenue. This is before Donald Trump buys it. He's at Donald Trump's building at Trump Tower. Him and his dad have a couple of floors. 
And so he's one block away from uh, the Plaza Hotel. And I remember walking across the street at noon and I saw him standing there and he smiled this really broad smile and like, like I was his long lost lover or something. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what is, what's going to happen? So I follow him into the plaza. I follow him into the Oak Room. Now, normally the Oak Room is, is like a, a lunch place. You can have lunch there and it would be crowded and there would be people. But on that day at 12 o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday, it was completely empty. And um, so like all the tables were empty, all the chairs were empty. I thought it was very bizarre, but we sat down and then immediately two men walked in and they could have sat anywhere because the place was literally empty, but they decided to sit immediately to his right. I was to his left. And I thought it was very odd then. And I still think it's very odd. I don't know, maybe they were his bodyguards. I don't know. But um, he doesn't order lunch. He turns around and he says to me, I want to see you exclusively. And I said to him, the girl you met and the girl I am are two different people. And I stood up and I left thinking, okay, this is it. End of story, end of the problem. I go back to my office. I come home, I tell my boyfriend, but you know, during when I'm not working or I'm not going to school, I'm on my bike and I'm riding through the park. And suddenly I see him in the park. Now I wouldn't know for a while that he has police officers and private detectives working for him, spying on me, telling him when I'm going to the park so that he could be there. He does this a couple of times. I get really annoyed. I tell my boyfriend, hey, this guy is stalking me. I need for you to go and tell him to leave me alone. My boyfriend, he turns around and he says, um, well, maybe I can meet him and I can sell him. He knew, it, he, was a, he knew who it was. He knew he was a billionaire. I can sell him some bonds. And I was like, excuse me? And, um, I had an enormous argument with him. I mean, my sister had betrayed me. Everybody had betrayed me. And this was the man I was going to marry. And suddenly he's, he wants to make money on my stalker. So I had a big argument with him and I broke up with him. And I go off to the park again the following day, but now I'm crying and I'm a little shaky on my bike. And there he is again. So I don't remember if I fell off my bike or if I just got off the bike because that was a long time ago. But I know that once I was off the bike, came around and he hugged me and he told me that he would make all of my problems go away, that I would never be alone, that he could make all, you know, he, he will protect me from, from all harm. And when you are at that rock bottom place, you really do hope and pray. I mean, I'm not religious. So again, I use that word very, very, very loosely that somebody on a white horse is gonna come and rescue you. You know, I had not learned that you have to rescue yourself at that point. And um, as much as I wanted to avoid him because he was a, a reminder of a past, I wanted to forget. 
he made me sound, he made it sound like he was my only hope. Um, and so he said, if you want to be a fashion designer, I can help you. If you, anything you want, I can, I can make it happen. And so I acquiesced and um, I became his sex slave for many years. Yeah. Wow, this is really harrowing, um, Kirby. And I commend you for your bravery speaking out. Ash has informed me that we only have a couple of minutes left of the half an hour here. And I know you've got so much to talk about. So perhaps we're going to have to just say something in conclusion and get you back on to continue this. Is that okay with you? Yeah, absolutely. In conclusion, I want to say that in 1984, uh, Michelle Rickles, Ariel Sharon, who was the prime minister of Israel, and Rafi Eitan had a private meeting to discuss that they were going to hire Robert Maxwell to sell the compromised version of Promise to Sandia so that they can steal the nuclear secrets of the United States. Rafi Eitan was Jonathan Pollard's handler, but he was also the handler of Robert Maxwell. And um, I just wanna add that in closing, um, they're very friendly with Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell knows Joe Biden very well. Joe Biden has just uh, made Antony Blinken the Secretary of State Blinken is the stepson of Samuel Pissar, who was Maxwell's, Robert Maxwell's Mossad agent, attorney, and confidant. He is the last person that he spoke with before he fell or was pushed off the Lady Ghislaine on November 5th, 1991. And this is the closer. Anthony Blinken went to Dalton at the same time that Donald Barr Bill Barr's father was headmaster. So I'll leave it there and we can pick this up whenever you want. I've just got one more question and a couple of questions sure. on the back of that. So what is the implications for Maxwell then? Is she going to get some kind of deal through the presidential, the new presidency in America? They're very good friends of her. You know, so I, I, I have tried to tell people it doesn't matter if they're a Republican or a Democrat because they're all of the presidents have been connected to certain people like Robert Maxwell or Michelle Rickless. And so I believe they're going to treat her well. And what, when do you think that Epstein and Maxwell actually met each other? You're gonna be the first to know this, it's in my book. I believe they met each other when Ghislaine Maxwell was on the yacht after her father died going through the papers. Um, he had his number in all of the contact numbers, and that is how I believe they met. I do not believe um, Ari Ben Menashe. I think that he's a disinformation agent. I happen to know from insiders that he is put out there when they need someone to say something. And so I believe she got his phone number. She made a couple of phone calls, and that is how she met him. How many books have you written, Kirby? About 12. But I've always written books, you know, like I used to write real estate books. I've been in real estate for 20 years. And then I, when Epstein was arrested uh, in July of 2019, I stopped my life. I was like, I'm going after this because I had so many missing pieces 
And I just wanted to get some of my pieces out there uh, because I knew that this went back many generations and it had many layers to it. How long did it take you to write all those books? A long time. I mean, my memoir took, um, I started it in 1997. That was perhaps the most difficult book for me. It, that, that took a very long time and I finished that last year. Most books take about eight months for me to write. And because I write uh, the newsletter that I send out every week, sometimes I'll turn those into books depending on the subject. I will lump them together as a, you know, as essays for a certain subject and I'll put that out as a book. And I'm working on Glaine Maxwell, uh, an unauthorized biography that should be finished in June. And that has a lot of juicy information that nobody knows. Absolutely fantastic. Um, you really did get in depth, uh, but I I can see you know because of the time constraints, there's so much yeah, more that's to go fine. over. So let's let's pick this up next time. Huge thank you for coming on, and I'm going to urge oh, people to go you. down and and click on all your links and and you know check your books out. Okay, terrific. Thank you, Sean. Have a good day. All right, you too. Take care now. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Hi, Sean. Hey, how's it going? Well, it's a challenging time, isn't it? It certainly is. You know, everybody is absolutely dying to hear what is going on with you since last week. We had this, you know, we built it up. You sent us various messages the last couple of weeks about all of the trouble, that the chaos, the legal stuff surrounding you right now, that, you know, they're coming after you, basically. Well, I think it's stupid on their part because it's one thing to go after people who who don't have any kind of profile, but... Somebody like me who's known all over the place and has been doing this for so long, it just causes more blowback on them. So I think it's a sign of desperation in the times. Um, but it's also specifically because the minister in Canada responsible for COVID measures, he's the top cop. His name is Bill Blair. In fact, he's a former policeman who was charged uh, by uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International with, with violating the rights of... Um, protesters in canada like the guy's a real thug anyway now he's um responsible for all the police the border agency and that and this bill blair was named in an indictment that our grand jury sent to them just the same week that they issued the fraudulent covid measure against me to isolate out of the blue they just made up stuff they lied in print that you know all of this stuff had happened so it was really stupid but it was right after we had named him and two other cabinet ministers as being involved directly with money laundering, uh, human trafficking on the West Coast in conjunction with the Chinese. We've documented this for the last two years. And um, under our jurisdiction of the Republic of Canada, we've laid charges against these people. So the same week this starts coming down, I get this fraudulent order to isolate. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's there have been other attacks too, like attacks on my laptop and bank account. I can't access the usual kind of gamut of things that happen. But again, I think it's, they wouldn't be doing that unless they were uh, desperate. And, um, you know, this is more of the same. This kind of stuff has been going on for years. And I, I really love it because it, it's like prodding the beast and they expose themselves in the process, right? So do you want to tell people a little bit about your work who are not familiar with you and what has led to these threats by the Canadian government? Oh, where do I begin? Well, I... <laughs> I guess I could begin a quarter century ago. Um, for me, a lot of this stuff began as a clergyman, uh, the United Church of Canada on the West Coast. 
And I began to encounter in my community of Port Alberni, the survivors of these death camps, they called Indian residential schools. I began to let them in, speak from my pulpit. We began to find out a lot of horrible stuff. And the thing that clinched it, that th got the church to throw me out was that I had discovered that for many years, the uh, early missionaries had been grabbing native land and then selling it off to various corporate interests for a lot of money. And I found out one of these issues and I raised it. Well, I didn't know that it was a huge corporate deal going on between the church, the government and Weyerhaeuser, which is the world's largest logging company using stolen native land. And I kind of naively wrote this letter about it that we shouldn't be doing this according to our own policies on, on native rights. And uh, I was thrown out. Uh, my wife was approached and offered to, uh, you know, assistance if she would divorce me. It went on and on like that, a really horrible thing, what they do to whistleblowers, right? You go after your family and your livelihood. But I persisted in this. And over the years, we built a big movement that eventually forced out the truth of these crimes. You can read it all at murderbydecree.com, uh, all of our evidence. And then it, it catapulted. It was interesting. After the government actually issue, uh, issued a, quote, apology for this stuff in 2008, I began to get invited to Europe. Uh, by survivors of the Catholic Church, the same kind of crimes going on there. And we built this international tribunal into crimes of church and state, the common law court case that convicted and helped force out Pope Benedict in 2013. And really it led to the whole movement to disestablish the crown and set up sovereign republics free of these agencies that have committed historical genocide and is you know, ongoing crimes against the innocent. So it's all been an amazing ride. And uh, and yet I guess it kind of follows from, uh, you know, the kind of person I've always been. You know, I've not been one to turn away when I see my, my own complicity and the complicity of people around us in these crimes. So I think it's just uh, staying true to who we are. And yet in the present times, that can be very explosive. And is it because you're getting so close to the target now these attacks are accelerating against you. Yeah, but you know, it's funny because up till now, the the state and the churches and these other people implicated in these crimes, they tend to shoot at the people around me. Um, I've never been sued once in 25 years, which tells you something. Um, they've never denied any of the stuff we've surfaced, any of the evidence of ongoing genocide here and around the world. Um, they just attack credibility. They do the usual divide and conquer smear campaign, get people afraid of me and the issue. Uh, it often works for people who are uninformed or who tend to be afraid. For the last year, I've been helping to set up common law assemblies across Canada. And in many cases, those assemblies are then targeted. You know, the usual pattern of bribes being offered. Um, we even had a woman who was very active in organizing one of them on Vancouver Island. Right after they passed a law, banishing COVID measures. And our, our assemblies have been doing that. We've been issuing our own stand-down orders to the police, saying that these laws are uh, unlawful. They didn't come from any court, any legislature. They're unhealthy. They violate our, our you know, rights under the Nuremberg Convention, 1947, to f inform consent for medical procedures. All the things people cite all the time, we put it into print. We've issued our own laws from our assemblies. And the people have tried to do that. One of the women on Vancouver Island who did that said she was approached by the Royal Canadian Mount of Police and said, we won't prosecute you if you speak out against Kevin Annett and the Republic. Wow. And uh, I remember th that's a, an echo of, of what happened when we held our first tribunal in Vancouver in 1998 in the summer that first brought out a lot of these crimes, uh, of horrible crimes against Native children. Um, 
And one of the native women who was the chief witness came to me and said, the Mounties have told her that uh, money can be made if you speak out against Kevin and this tribunal. And that, you know, 23 years later, that's still the case. And it's, it's the standard procedure of how you deal with people who will not buckle. Um, if I was native, I'd be dead by now. But I'm, you know, I was a white professional, so they can't overtly kill. They don't want to create martyrs. They want to just get people afraid of, of an issue and an individual. And um, it works only so far. But like I often say, a smear campaign helps you in the long run because people start talking more about you and the issue. So, you know, I, I, I think this latest desperate act by them uh, is a sign of they're kind of not sure how to deal with a movement this big. Because over half, you know, in a recent opinion poll, over half of the Canadians surveyed said they want an end to ties with the crown. They want a republic. So we have a tremendous base of support, but they have to always kind of isolate and try to discredit the most articulate, the most effective of us, right? You've got a question coming from one of the viewers, Kevin. This is from Momzilla. Could you please tell us what your fellow Canadians can do to support you and your cause? Well, there's a couple of websites to look at right away. The, the website of the Republic of Canada uh, is at, that's Kanata, K-A-N-A-T-A, republicofkanata.ca. And murderbydecree.com gives a lot of the background for uh, why we established the Republic. I mean, don't forget that the Crown of England, the Vatican, the churches and government of Canada were all found lawfully guilty of crimes against humanity. At that point, they don't have any authority anymore. Um, and there's other reasons too, we point to historically why a Republic is lawful. And it's interesting when police challenge us, all we show them is our citizenship card. We say we've disavowed allegiance to the crown. We're under our own jurisdiction. They always back down, which, you know, they're not stupid. They know the law. They know that if you're standing on your sovereign rights, they can't do anything about it. If you stand outside their jurisdiction. So I would say to people who want to help in, in Canada, you can also write to us, um, Republic National Council at protonmail.com. And uh, we have groups now in over 100 communities in Canada actively working, you know, to set up a new jurisdiction, basically, a new way to operate our own assemblies, our own courts. So Kevin's links are in the live chat right now and also will be in any description boxes of any videos anywhere else this goes out. So this genocide is not just historical, it's ongoing and your research has led to you to uncover the role of the Chinese in this presently. A very big role. Uh, of course, anyone who's been around British Columbia for the last 30 years knows this. They just have to look around. But it's interesting, even the head of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, he's like Canada's MI5. Um, he, he said 10 years ago that they had our hard evidence that the Chinese government had systematically infiltrated the West Coast, uh, the British Columbia government. And we know that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police do joint maneuvers with Chinese troops. We've got that on film. We know that the general who runs the organ trafficking uh, businesses in China sits on the board of directors of the liquid natural gas companies all over Northern British Columbia, where thousands of native people have gone missing. We've documented it's whole families, whole communities uh, the government did a kind of a bogus missing women's inquiry, which, you know, covered up more than have revealed. But even they admitted that it was right in the area where these liquid natural gas sites are. And basically Chinese and uh, Canadian police and, and military just terrorized native people off the land to get this. Um, the first 
led a piece of legislation the Trudeau government brought in when they were elected was the Foreign Investment Protection Act, which gives China the right to station its troops on Canadian soil, if you can believe it. I mean, these open treasonous acts are now operating under the, the convenient camouflage of the COVID scare. In British Columbia, they just said you can't even travel from one community to another now, or you may face not just fine, but arrest. It's all designed to keep people terrorized so they won't dig deeper into the crimes in their own backyard, right? Another question coming from a viewer, Sapphire, thank you. Does Kevin and his family have to live carefully, constantly moving? Well, my I have two daughters um, who I lost custody of many years ago, but they're close to 30 now. We're still in touch, but um, personally, I have to live uh, very much off the radar, uh, except when I will show up and... Uh, speak you know at rallies briefly and that i don't know if you ever saw that movie cry freedom about steve biko in south africa under apartheid but uh, there was a scene where he would drive around he was banned uh in south africa so he couldn't appear in front of a group of more than three people his name couldn't be mentioned in the press very much my situation and uh, he would show up in a car he'd get up give a speech in a from a uh, a concealed microphone to a big crowd and then he'd get in the car and take off again i mean that's the way I operate now, and um, I don't like it. It's my country. The, these corrupt politicians are the ones who should be under the gun, not me. Um, but it's what we live in right now, and it's really important to show people we're not afraid of them. There's no need to be afraid of them. You know, they only rule through fear and ignorance, and we have to put it right back in their face. You know. So, can you explain to people then about the Republic of Kanata? It was an old idea. In fa matter of fact, um, my great, great, great grandfather, Philip Annett, he was a farmer in Ontario and he took part in the 1837 rebellion. It was like our war of independence. We tried to throw out the British crown and we failed. Um, and somehow my, my ancestor evaded the hangman, but um, because that Republic failed, the power of the crown and the church was solidified and it's absolute. Most of the laws passed in Canada are never even debated in parliament. They're passed order and council, the Queen's Privy Council, these bureaucrats who just write out laws like the COVID measures, right? Or the Indian Act or any of these other illegal laws. And, um, and so what we say is uh, we are in 2015, in January, 2015, we had a convention in Winnipeg and we established the framework for a Republic that would consist of local sovereign assemblies, um, and courts, we view this as building up from the grassroots. We're not just declaring a new nation, we're building it from the grassroots. So for example, if you have 12 or more people, they sign a charter and that gives them the right to pass their own laws or a legislature. And uh, they can elect their own sheriffs, their own courts. And that gives a solid, like a constitutional and a, and a basis and and uh, and roots in the, in the local community to build up the Republic. It'll take generations like anything good does. But um, the point is, it gives people an alternative now because you can protest, you can educate yourself on common law, you can even try to get your, your straw man name back. But as long as you're in their jurisdiction, they have authority over you. You need another jurisdiction to operate it out of. And for us, that's what Kanata is. Now we're wa working in alliance with native people and their own sovereignty, their own sovereign movement. So it's really, we're envisioning a federation of equal nations of indigenous and who are several million people in Canada and uh, and the rest, the, the other 30 million of us. So, you know, we're hopeful. We have a tremendous response all the time. We don't have the resources to keep up with the interest and the volunteers, 
and uh, it's really spreading. And I think that explains why we're facing these renewed attacks right now. So now we're going to go into territory we're not allowed to enter on YouTube, Kevin. So we've never uh, um, covered this ground before. YouTube has a policy whereby you're not allowed to talk about the pandemic unless it is in line with the World Health Organization <laughs> view of it. What's your thoughts on that? Well, uh, uh, let me just give you a, uh, from my own life experience, which I always trust. I'm a realist. You know, I believe that we we know what's true from our own experience and our own reason and intuition. And for over the last year, I have not masked. I have not distanced. I'm 65. I have bronchial asthma. I'm in the highest category group to get this thing if it existed. I mix with poor people all the time. I shake hands with natives on the street. I have not once in 13 months gotten any symptoms of flu, COVID, anything. So from my experience, and, and British Columbia is supposed to be a hot zone for this right now. So my belief is that it doesn't actually exist. I think that there is an illness happening. Uh, people are getting sick. And part of, part of it is just the level of stress and trauma that's crushing their immune system. The level of fear out there is causing incredible sickness, psychological sickness, which always manifests physically, right? Um, but I don't believe any of that actually exists. I have yet to see any evidence that it does. And a lot of people are being publishing great stuff about this, how, you know, um, it, we, we have to go on our own experience. And that's proof to me that, no, this is the oldest game in the world, genocide and police state measures are always justified by the state as a public health measure. That's how the Nazis did in Germany when they talk about social cleansing of undesirable elements. The Indian Act talked about, you know, Indians spreading disease. Therefore, they had to be contained in special hospitals and, and internment camps they call residential schools. It's always designed because psychologically, when it's kind of like the, the microbial terrorist you know, there used to be these terrorists who we had to protect ourselves against. And it's brilliant now for the state because now your own, the microbes in your body and the germs and viruses, they're the terrorists we have to protect ourselves against. So it's a perfect way to get people to imprison themselves in their own mind. Um, it's, it's brilliant. You know, you have to applaud these guys because they're very smart. They know what they're doing, but we have to be equally smart. And, um, you know, there was an English philosopher, Jeremy Bentham. He constructed the model for all of this in the early 1800s. Um, you can see if you're in London, go into the University of London, his, his corpse is stuffed and stuck and put in a glass case for some reason, Jeremy Bentham. Um, but anyway, this guy said he created a thing called the Panopticon, which was a, a model for not just prisons, but all of society that everyone is put in a circular building and there's a central tower by which any, everybody can be watched all the time. Now, they're not necessarily watched all the time, but they think they are. So they police themselves. The prisoners lock themselves in at night. They don't rebel. If they speak out, they're gagged, which is interesting. Back in 1812, he was saying you should gag people if they speak out too much as a sign to the others. So it's all there. And in fact, you look around at how many cameras are on every street corner. We do this to ourselves. Nothing is being done to us without our consent. They say this law exists and we say, okay, and we obey it. Therefore, we make it real. But if we don't obey it, they have no power over us because we're in the panopticon. We're, we're policing and imprisoning ourselves. And the minute you mentally step out, and Bentham said the way the panopticon doesn't work is if the prisoners talk to each other and they ignore the central tower. They ignore the fact they're being monitored. And that's what we do in a sovereign republic movement. We turn away from them. We don't worry about what they're going to do. They're not doing anything to us. We talk about what are we going to do next? What are we going to establish? How are we going to support each other? 
build up our own republic and be sovereign right here first in our own mind. But it's, it starts individually, but it spreads out. And the art is knowing how to form a whole community response to this, not just an, an individual defiance, which is where it begins, but how you translate into creating an alternative based on sovereignty and our natural liberty. And once you do that, they have no power over us. You know, how many police does it take to monitor two, three million people? You know, uh, they can't. If enough of us say no, there's no way. They don't have the numbers to stop us. So Chris wants to know, what's Kevin's take on the validity of the PCR test? Oh, well, do you mean the uh, COVID test that they shove the thing up your nostril and that? Yeah. It, it's interesting because years ago, as a street minister in Vancouver, I was seeing uh, Catholic nurses doing this to homeless men on the street. They would hold them down with the help of the police and shove these things right up their nostril. And uh, whether it's an implant, whether it's an experimental device, I think it's it's all of the above. Because to do a, get a mucus swab, you don't have to shove it right up your nose. You know, um, you take a little bit right there. And and so obviously there's more going on than, than a test. Uh, it's a policing device, a control device. And who knows really, you need insiders to come forward and, and say, you know, what, what these things really are, right? Next question then is, what is the vaccine program on the Native American people in Canada? Well, since 1874, it's been mandatory vaccinations on any Indian reservation. Since the bringing in of the Indian Act, if you refuse a vaccination, you go to jail. What? It's always, it's always been that way for, for Natives on reserve. Oh it's my like goodness. Oh yeah, just read the Indian Act. If you refuse medical treatment, you go to jail. That's why they were able to do all these genocidal acts because Indians under the law are not citizens. They're wards of the state in perpetuity. That means you're like a child under the law until the end of time. Now, all they're doing in Canada and around the world is they're applying the Indian Act to all of us. Now we're all Indians on reservation. We cannot say no under their system. And um, you know that's why you can't operate in their jurisdiction or you're their slave, literally. So um, Native people, I get stuff all the time because I know them all, all over the country. And we work in our republic in, in union with sovereign Native people, not the chiefs and the council who are tied into the government money, who are the puppets, but the Native, the elders, the clan mothers, the traditionalists on the ground, the, the young Native people who live on the street. They're the ones we work with. And they're telling us the same thing. I'll give you an example. Just a few months ago, there's an area of downtown Vancouver called Opp Oppenheimer Park. They corralled all of the homeless into this two block area park, didn't distance, didn't do anything. And then we came there one Saturday morning and they were all gone, disappeared. And I asked cops, I asked everybody, they, they said they were in hotels. I went to the hotels and they weren't there. Um, they obviously just shipped them out and they do this routinely to the homeless and to natives. But um, don't forget, natives have always been the canary in the mine shaft. They're the test subjects for any of these things. Um, you know, when the uh, swine flu thing happened, they went out to the reservations and forced the experimental vaccination into the arms of young native kids. We had affidavits from native mothers describing that in a house it on Vancouver Island as recently as two years ago. So yeah, they're, they're, it, it, these crimes are happening right now to, to natives. And, and that's why when you ignore the genocide done to them, it's to your own, uh, it's at your own expense because it'll it's now happening to all of us so that's why i say do the background reading at murderbydecree.com we lay out all of the history of that how it came about the the horrible crimes the sterilization programs medical experiments in these indian hospitals we 
We know where the mass graves are. We've documented 28 of these sites where these children are buried. Well, it could be our children and you tomorrow in those graves, right? Nicole wants to know whether you think that vaccinations will be forced upon us eventually. Uh, perhaps it's more of a manipulation like with the passports. You, you know, you can't have a passport unless you have a, a vaccine, that kind of thing. Well, nothing is ever forced on us. You know, we we will line up and get into the cattle cars ourselves, the vast majority of us, because we're already programmed to do that. And people say, how come, you know, there were, there were only a few guards in these scenes at the death camps and there are thousands of people. Why do they all line up dutifully? Well, you could say, why are you all masking now dutifully? Why are 90% of people will do that? I remember uh, there was a really good study that Tavistock Institute did right in World War I in London. And they said, 85% of people will automatically believe what's ever written in the newspapers. They will accept it as fact. And that, that figure is accurate. It's like an iceberg. It's about one-sixth to one-seventh is below the surface. And um, that submerged humanity, it, it's, it's been like that for thousands of years. We're programmed to, to labor and to serve and not question. But the 15% are the motive force of history because they can break that. You know, they, with a different consciousness, they can create a new system. That's when revolutions happen, right? Um, and, and that's what we need to do. We could organize that minority and not worry about, you know, arguing with people about they shouldn't, we shouldn't be fighting each other. Don't worry about the guy trying to put a mask on you. Go to the address of these corporate and political hotshots who are doing it. Target them, not each other. And unite with them, the active minority. Those are the ones who are going to change things, right? When I was growing up, BBC News was fact, but then along came the internet and hey-ho, things uh, changed yeah. slightly. Right. Okay, next question is from JJ. At risk of sounding paranoid, do you think the vaccines will eventually include microchips that could track people? I think they already do. Um, but don't forget, we are energy. You know, we are in a illusory hologram, Right. And I'm very realistic. I, I believe I exist in this world, but there's more to this world than we know. We are energy and anything could be countered with an opposite energy. And, um, you know, I know that for a fact, that's why I'm still alive because I should have been killed many years ago. And there were attempts, there was, they did everything short of killing me, but they realized that when you're in your own power, you can't be touched. And we each have to operate that way. Every morning when we get up, we have to prepare ourselves that way. Don't turn on these machines. <laughs> Stand out in nature, be close to children and animals and nature. That's where our natural strength lies and the integrity of our own soul. And that is the power that can defeat this. And when you unite even five or 10 people like that, we are immense. We had only two dozen people and we forced the issue of genocide to the surface in Canada, right? And because we were determined and never gave up. And that's what we need to do. So in a way, it doesn't matter what they've done or what they plan to do. It's now a question of what we plan to do, what we're going to do, right? Cynthia has said, I watched a documentary on YouTube about a native woman getting murdered in Canada. Does Kevin have any insight into that? All the time. I mean, it, it's the norm. I, we, we've got a list of hundreds of people, eight of our own active members in British Columbia, native people, all were killed. You, you probably know the case of William Coombs, who uh, was the one who saw Queen Elizabeth take those children from the Kamloops school in 1964, and they were never seen again. William, they killed with arsenic poisoning, and according to Chloe Kirker, the nurse, uh, who treated them, had all the symptoms. They do it all the time, routinely. We even know the places where they go and kill natives outside mm -hmm. Vancouver, up the Sea to Sky Highway. There's a mass burial site there. It's not lack of evidence or knowledge. It's what do you do with it? 
who do you take it to? You make a stink, you embarrass them. But then you find the people you work with get knocked off really easily, primarily by being scared off. So it's a continual struggle to you build up, you get knocked down, build up, you get knocked down. But eventually our persistence does make an impact. They wouldn't have apologized for the residential schools unless it hadn't made an impact. Ratzinger wouldn't have resigned in February 2013 unless we had brought that stuff, the truth out. So we do have a power but we have to always stand in it. And it's tiring. We need to find ways to recover, to help each other. That You can't do it alone. We need one another in this whole struggle, right? Treza has asked, are the Canadian police doing anything about the missing Indigenous people? And how much public interest is there in Canada to stop these crimes? Very little. Natives really don't matter to people, by and large, I found that. Uh, it's the police themselves that are making Natives go missing. By police, I mean specifically the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, who are a military society. They don't, they're not accountable really to anybody, uh, except the Solicitor General. Um, <clears throat> they're outside the law, in other words. So they make people go missing all the time. The local police are different. The municipal police in Vancouver and other cities are on board. We've even had some police come to our common law training workshops. And some of them have even taken a pledge of allegiance to the Republic and disavow their oath to Queen Elizabeth, so-called. Um, and so I think, you know, this stuff is like a gradually building tsunami and we just have to stay persistent, but people have to defend themselves. That's the reality on the ground. You can't look to anything in the system at all, really. Brad Backman has asked, could you elaborate on the role of Wirehouser that you spoke of earlier? Well, Wirehouser, um, made a deal back in 1994 to buy up, uh, the largest logging company in British Columbia, Macmillan Bloedel. Macmillan Bloedel was a big, strong financial backer of my former church, the United Church of Canada. And I discovered the deal going on that the church was selling off stolen native land to these logging companies for a lot of kickbacks. And when I wrote about that, I got canned and all of this stuff started over 25 years ago now for me. But Weyerhaeuser was instrumental in not only that deal, but they now have signed off a lot of their holdings on Vancouver and in conjunction with a native run logging company called Lissac Limited, which is, you know, they call it redwashing. You put a native person on the board of directors and nobody will protest the logging anymore because the Indians are doing it, right? It's not politically correct to protest native logging. Um, so, you know, it's a, the old corporate strategy and Weyerhaeuser is part of that, but they're a notorious corporation all over the world. They've been implicated in, um, you know, the usual kinds of crimes in, in, in countries like Indonesia and that where they just slaughter whole villages. Uh, they've got to be a bit more subtle in Vancouver, in British Columbia. They make people go missing off the radar, um, you know, but the point is Weyerhaeuser is being central to all of that. They were named in our original indictment against the Pope in Canada as one of the, the uh, co-conspirators in genocide. Wow. 12-step woman has said, please remain safe out there, Kevin. And thank you for all that you do, sir. And next question is from Sapphire, who has said, does Kevin know Janet Ozabard and Cynthia Curta in Spain? They are from Holland, but fled to Spain several months ago. They are working on this issue, grassroots. No, I don't know them, um, but feel free to pass on our information. Um, we work a lot with people and you might have seen other interviews I've done with people like Tos Nienhaus 
Anne-Marie van Bienberg, who were survivors of these ninth circle satanic cults, especially in Belgium and, Dut and the Belgian, Dutch, British royal families, all very connected. These are eyewitnesses to the sacrificial rituals uh, involving newborns and children and that. And it's interesting because some of them have had, have maybe Spain is a good place to go. I don't know. I know the weather is nice, but, uh, but a, a number of people I know have gone to Spain or Portugal to, to kind of evade arrest. So, um, yeah, we all need to unite as much as we can on this stuff. You know, it's the same crime, really. Christian has asked, there was a burning of some Freemasonic temples in BC. What is your yeah. opinion about this? Well, it was interesting. It's kind of, it was kind of like the Reichstag fire uh, because we find that just before these attacks come down, um, there'll be an incident like that. And that happened right in the same time they were targeting me and other people. It wasn't just me who was getting targeted. A number of our native uh, members down on the street were picked up then, and they're still incarcerated. We're not quite sure where they are. Uh, these are native people who've sworn uh, citizens of the Republic. And, um, you know, I mean, right at the same time, you then get three Masonic temples burning down. Most of the judges in, in the BC Supreme Court are Freemasons. and Certainly, it would be a way to prod them into saying, look, there's terrorism all over the place. You got to come down on these people. It's part of the creation of the whole climate of, of state terror. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the oldest game in the world. You know, it's, I love the quote from Harry Truman when he said, the only, uh, uh, the only thing new under the sun is the history you didn't know about because history just keeps repeating and repeating and repeating, right? The same methods. That's the thing. The advantage we have in fighting the system is it's a big monolith. Uh, it can only maneuver so much. It has a set protocol. We know how they're going to react, but we, we don't have to be that way. We have the advantage of a guerrilla movement, unpredictability, and uh, like Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, never do what your opponent wants you to do. Never react to what they're doing or they've got you controlled, right? Exactly. What a brilliant way to end this. You've gone five minutes into overtime. There's still tons of questions coming in. Thank you. So um, at some point, we would love to get you back on. It's always an absolute pleasure, Kevin, and wish you the best. And we hope they don't send the SWAT team for you anytime soon. It won't stop it. It won't stop any of this. Um, so thank you all for listening. Spread the word. I'll see you all again soon. Thank, thank you, Sean. And Kevin's links will be down below the video. So please support his work. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Cheers. Right, let's, um, okay, yeah, I guess with Kevin on the move, his Wi-Fi is variable, but, you know, we could hear him pretty well, so I just kept it rolling. Better audio than alone, than no audio and no video, and from your responses to Kevin, seems like you really enjoyed that. If we had a prize for the most articulate guest, He's got, he's, I think he would probably win it. All right, so we're going to bring Perry Freeman in now. Let's see. Let me get in here. People. Perry Freeman. What page are we on? Okay, let me just keep scrolling. Rolling. Here he is. Got him. 
All right, bringing Perry in right now. And we're going to be getting into John Bonet Ramsey, among other things. He worked undercover narcotics and infiltrated an outlaw biker club. It's going to be fascinating. Let's see. Yep, it is connecting right now. Let's see what happens. Thanks for all the questions for Kevin. Some really good questions there. Hopefully Perry's um, gonna come through loud and clear and we're gonna have some video this time. That's two guests tonight. We've had audio only, but Kirby Summers was going to be audio only from the get-go. Can't wait to pick up the conversation with Kirby. She just really gets deep. Back to the Iran-Contra stuff that I discovered researching my War on Drugs series of books. Just putting the finishing touches right now to... Who killed Epstein, Prince Andrew, or Bill Clinton? The bulk of it is with the editor already. So my new book should be out two to three months from now. Can't wait to see the cover. <laughs> Can't wait to see what the cover looks like on that one from my cover designer. <laughs> of Prince Andrew on the left, Bill Clinton on the right. <laughs> Who killed Epstein? So, the thing with Perry is not connecting right now. So what I might do is I'm going to do a refresh of my whole screen. If you lose me for a minute or so, don't worry. Perhaps this will reset it so we can get him connecting. Just give me a moment, please. Let's have a refresh. All right, we're back. Let's try again with Perry. Yep, still accepted and connecting. I'm going to click on his icon one more time. I think he was at the back. Where is he? Next. All right, invite onto screen. Let's try this again. Yes. Let's see what happens now. I don't know if you guys saw this news on Prince Andrew today. Is he going to bow down and do a lie detector test? No. We broke that on the channel days before it was headline news. Yesterday is today's news that he's going to cooperate with the FBI. Nope. Today's earth-shattering news on Prince Andrew is that he was behind the present of two new corgi puppies to help the Queen cope 
when Prince Philip was ill in hospital. Didn't we see the same thing happen with Maxwell? Pet stories? These super predators think they can just pop back into our lives and all will be forgiven if they put out a few pet stories? This is absolutely absurd. Still waiting for Perry to come in here. Um, Her Majesty's new puppies. Muck. <laughs> Pronounced Mick, actually. Mick and Fergus were gifted to her earlier this year. Dogs bought by Prince Andrew for his mother while her husband was in hospital. And royal, royal experts. There we go. I'm just about to put my crown. Let's see. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Let me just close this box. There we go. Absolutely delighted that you are on here this evening. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. That's uh, Kevin's a hard act to follow, I think. Um, yeah, he, he does. He does put his words together very uh, succinctly and engagingly. Yeah, I'm going to have to be very careful how I speak here. <laughs> I don't want to pick up. I don't want to pick up the uh, English uh, accent because I was I was there for a couple of times, uh, and it's funny. After spending a week in London and Liverpool and running around with uh, some guys over there, you come home with that little accent. You, know? <laughs> you start you start calling women love and. <laughs> they want to slap you and things like that. So you guys yeah. do things a little different over there. When I came back from my hometown for 17 years and I saw people in the shop, a, a man was buying the newspaper and he's like, oh, thanks, love. And I was so surprised after being out of the country. It was like reverse culture shock. Yeah, I called my boss as soon as I got back and um, his wife answered the phone and I called her love. <laughs> that was, that's, that's not good. <laughs> So, Perry, would you like to tell the viewers a little bit about you then? What led you to get involved in the crime genre? Well, my dad was a cop. Um, I grew up in a, in a law enforcement family. My, my dad, my uncle, both were cops in Wichita, Kansas. Um, I became a cop um, in 81 on a, kind of a fluke. I didn't, uh, I'd had some run-ins with law enforcement and um, was kind of going the other direction you probably know a little bit about that and um my dad kind of challenged me i made a comment about um a cop who had accidentally killed a young kid um, with a shotgun and uh he grabbed me and uh, pulled me nose to nose and says you think you can do any blankety blank better get your butt out there and do it so i tested and by some fluke they hired me and um so I, I did about 35 years in law enforcement. Also, I had a brother that followed my tracks at Colorado Springs Police Department. Uh, I retired from there. Then I went to a small town in Nebraska uh, where I was a chief for 17 years. And I retired a little over a year ago. Wow, you must have a wealth of stories then. And one that we're going to yeah. start out with is Jean-Benet Ramsey. What got you interested in that? Well, we were in Colorado Springs. I was in the homicide unit in Colorado Springs when John Bonet was killed, um, December of uh, 96. Um, I think 
my first real interest, other than the normal person's interest from the media, was a Crime Stoppers line call that came in. And the Crime Stoppers phones were manned by volunteers. My cubicle happened to be right next to the Crime Stopper door. And somebody called with a tip on the John Benet Ramsey case. And the call taker panicked because it was a pretty serious call. Comes out of the room and he asked me to take the call. So I did. <clears throat> and this is what I remember from 25 years ago. A real stern voice starts out with, listen carefully. I've already repeated this once. Listen carefully, I think were the first words. It says, JonBenet was killed accidentally during a pedophile sexual ritual. And she was killed accidentally by a garot. Now, I'm like, oh my God, you know, we hadn't had anything to do with the case. We're two and a half, three hours away from Boulder. Um, my boss wanted me just to pass that information on to Boulder by phone. And I took a while to get a detective that was working the case on the phone. But the point was at the time, still to this day is, the press had not released anything about any kind of pedophile ring or anything along that line um, or the garage that had not been mentioned in the press. The public was not aware of that. So I think when I called Boulder and passed that under them, you know, basically um, they were shocked that I knew about the garage because only the investigators working the, the case would have been aware of that. So that's, I, I became pretty intrigued by the case at that point. Plus, um, you may or may not be familiar with Lou Smith, who was formerly a Colorado Springs uh, homicide detective. He had left, retired, and, and gone to the sheriff's office, <clears throat> left there, and went up to Boulder and worked on the case. And I was a pretty good friend of his. So I had numerous conversations with Lou Schmidt, who uh, didn't agree with Boulder's theory that it was the family, that the Ramseys had done this. He had an, uh, the intruder theory, and there's been a couple of specials done on him um, trying to cover his intruder theory. And of course, I told him what I had heard, and he says, yeah, I remember seeing that in the case. But he, he blew it off. He never he never would buy that. So that, that was pretty much my interest. Um, I, I still have mixed uh, feelings about what might have happened. And um, I did a YouTube video on pretty much what I just told you. And it went crazy uh, for, for my little channel. And... Um, I think I kind of got shadow banned or something. I kind of went from like the top of the queue when someone would put John Bonet in to where I couldn't even find my my own video. Uh, and that could have just been analytics, something maybe graphic that I said, uh, you know, that got kicked me back. But I went from being in the top 10 in the queue to 250 or something. So I built up like 120 views in maybe four or five weeks to where I was getting you know, 10 views a day. Well, what the heck happened? Um, anyway, that's 
that's what I know about John Bonet, other than I've had two experts uh, that I've personally dealt with over the ransom note. One is 100% sure that Patsy wrote that note. The other one wouldn't commit to that. Talk more about the personality of the person that wrote the note. <clears throat> but there's just as many experts um, with the same qualifications um, as Marcel Efflers. That's the handwriting expert that is 100% sure that Patsy wrote it. There's just as many uh, experts on the other side that say she didn't write it. So we don't know. The ransom note is a, is a mysterious part. The theory of an um, intruder is curious. The fact that the garrote was used and would be something that could be used in a sexual ritual takes me right back to my phone call. So that's, you know, really my involvement other than a lot of conversations with Lou Smith. Who's at the top of your suspect list? I really don't. I don't know that I have a suspect. Um, people email me with their theories, and some of them are very interesting. Um, I'm not going to go as far as to throw out a name, but I, I do think it was a sexual um, perverted act that caused her death, not. I, I'm not buying that uh, mom or uh, the older brother conked her over the head and then they panicked and, and had to cover it up. I'm, I'm not buying that part of it. I think there was someone else involved. And is the probability that it was somebody that she knew? Yes, that's one of the theories, yes. Have you looked at parallels in the Madeleine McCann case? A little bit. Um, you know, I think there's some curious things um, with John Ramsey. I think he used um, one of the female attorneys that uh, Gaylene Maxwell had used uh, in the past. That's kind of curious. There's also a photograph at one of the pageants where there's a woman in the background that a lot of people think is Maxwell. Can't say that it is. It does look like her. So, I don't know if we'll ever know. You got a question from a viewer, Mumzilla. Has anything been uncovered about the actual paedophile ring that would use the famous children in their rituals? I have read that her father has been connected to a big pedo ring. I know there's a lot of stuff on the internet uh, alleging those kind of things. And... Um, I think that's basically what the phone call was trying to get across. The guy hung up on me really quick. I, I think he was worried that the call might be traced. Um, so there were a number of people uh, involved, uh, high-level people, um, Hollywood, D.C., wealthy people. I think of the three things he mentioned. And the garrote, which was shocking, and the fact that there was some kind of ritual abuse going on. And it was an accident which I think is interesting. Wow. Okay, so a murder case, Miss Berry victim, George Cliff McDaniel suspect, who ran to the UK, and you were sent to work with Scotland Yard over here. Yeah, yeah. 
So what happened with, with that case? Had a little helmet while I was there. <laughs> um, Missy Berry was the victim of that case. Uh, this was back in 94, September of 94. Uh, she worked at a little fast food place, and so did uh, Cliff McDaniel, George Cliff McDaniel. They both worked there. Uh, she's leaving work, uh, closing the business, and um, Cliff approaches her and asks for a ride. He's, at, he's on a payphone. This is back when we had a payphone outside hanging on the building. He's on this payphone. And when Missy drives out, and she's got the money to go uh, to make the bank deposit, about 600 bucks, um, a cop, a uniformed cop, actually pulls into the parking lot and witnesses Cliff get off of the phone and get into the car, hollers Missy, and she stops and he asks for a ride. So we have a, a uniformed officer who worked that sector actually see him get into her car. 10 minutes later, she's found in the driver's seat, car running uh, at a stoplight, um, car in gear, and she's been shot point blank in the face. Mm. And it's um, about 100 yards from his apartment. Anyway, long story short, he obviously became a primary uh, suspect. We interviewed him for uh, hours and hours till the early morning hours. And he promptly, the next morning, went paid cash for a plane ticket to uh, London and then somehow ended up in Liverpool where he had um, an aunt, I believe. And so I got to come over and work with Scott Yard, who actually made the arrest. I, I got a warrant together. We sent it to uh, Her Majesty's Court and um, Scotland Yard picked him up for me. So I was treated like a king, I'll tell you. I got off the plane. I've never had somebody with the sign Freeman and uh, I was taken by uh, one of the cabs right to Scotland. Yard. Well, taken to my hotel first. And they wouldn't let me stay in the hotel that my department was going to put me up in when I talked to uh, Jean-Pierre Letissier, was the uh, uh, constable that I worked with. He says, no, no, you're not staying there. And uh, Scotland Yard put me up in the uh, Tower Hotel, which is a nice place. And they took great care of me. Practically got me in trouble while I was there, but... It was a, an experience, and we're still friends. Well, I grew up in a little town just outside of Liverpool. What did you make of the accent? Of the accent? Yeah, of the, of the Liverpudlians, the Scousers. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we took a train up there. I met in uh, London. Next morning, we got on a train and, and went up to Liverpool. And um, the, the local authorities, who had actually made the arrest, and John Pierre had gone up and brought him back and put him in prison waiting extradition. Um, there was quite a group uh, waiting for us uh, at a pub, of course. And uh, I don't know that I can remember a, a big difference in the accent, um, but um, they sure know how to party in <laughs> Liverpool. We had a late night there. Um, there was a female, um, investigator and a couple of uh, males and then the two of us and uh, some great music and you know a lot of pints went down that night and uh, <laughs> experience and then of course the next day we uh, uh, tried to interview people but they basically would not cooperate they wouldn't talk to me at all 
Okay, so how did you infiltrate the biker gang? How easy was that? Did you have to, um, you know, really get down and dirty and pretend to take drugs? Uh, not pretend to take drugs necessarily. I, was, I worked undercover narcotics for quite a while. Um, the biker thing was kind of a chain of events. And if any one of the, of the links of that chain hadn't been there, I would have never got in. I'm doing a, a series on my channel. Um, I think I've done five episodes, how I first got started toward the bikers. And um, so if anybody wants to watch those, some people think they're great, some people think they're boring, but it was just a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Started out with a uh, wealthy um, local personality who was on TV all the time with his uh, commercials for his business. And he got caught in a hotel room with a couple of um, working girls and a bunch of cocaine. And uh, their their handler showed up and there was a shootout and they all got away. He's left in the room with his with a bullet hole in his Mercedes and the cocaine in his, in his room. And uh, anyway, he needed to work off his charges. Um, I got assigned to work with him. We started going to the clubs and most of the clubs were kind of controlled by the biker group. Uh, a lot of the dancers are, are, you know, kind of under their watch. So that was the first step that led me to another biker. And then I brought some Hells Angels in from California. So I was seen again in those same bars with Hells Angels. So the local club um, started thinking I was the real deal. And uh, it was just one thing after another. And then I met a professional informant who was a who did nothing but specialize in uh, bikers. And he would get rotated from department to department. He would go in, they'd clean up a club, and um, they would find another department for him to go. And I worked with him for a while. And he, you know, he got me in really tight. I got to the point that I was, you know, prospecting to become a member of the local club. Wow. Any hurry moments? Yeah. Yeah. A few. <laughs> yeah. Got challenged a few times. And what do you do when you get challenged in, in that situation? Well, you just have to. Um, stand up to them. Uh, my my biggest challenge from them was right away when I first started going to the clubs and being able to sit at their table I was offered any of the dancers that I was interested in and so you have to you can't do the drugs and you obviously can't do the dancers either um, but I was invited to say after hours one night after they all the gawkers were pushed out and um, I was approached by this lady and then, you know, she expected me to go with her. And uh, that evolved to, you know, you know, I couldn't do it. And um, one of the guys that handled the, the girls uh, jumped out of his stool and came over and, you know, kind of grabbed me and we're kind of just in a little shoving match for a second. And a couple of the guys uh, jumped in and broke it up. And, um, they told me, you know, I need to get the heck out of there. That was the only physical time. Um, after we made the arrests, which kind of goes to what Kevin was talking about a little bit, I was getting in really deep, and I was going to start transporting uh, methamphetamine from Colorado back to, like, Illinois and Indiana, which is outlaw uh, country, not um, 
the sons, and that's who I was in with. And um, during my late nights in these clubs, the local boss, as they call them, started appearing. And when his name started appearing in my reports, I came in um, and one of the FBI agents was there. And he says, I need you to wrap up this, do your warrants. We're going to kick everything in. We think we know where the lab is. And I've been providing them with chemicals for the lab through DEA. And we thought we knew where the lab was. And um, I don't think that had anything to do with it. I think that person's name appearing in the reports was, as I think Kevin mentioned, you or you maybe said, uh, you're right over the target. And uh, they told me to wrap it up. And I was just maybe halfway where I thought I could, could take the club. Mm. So that always kind of bothered me. But it worked out. I I got just about every other job I tried for because of what I had done there. I think that helped my career. Just got a few minutes left. Just wanted to go over what you're doing now. We've got the murder of the six young girls in Carroll County, Indiana, and the sex trafficking film. Yeah, I'll try to try to get through this quick. I, I discovered um, in Delphi, Indiana, there were two girls murdered out in the woods, brutally murdered, 13 and 14-year-olds, hmm. back four years ago. When I started kind of looking at um, the people, the uh, the sleuths on the internet that were working that, I thought, well, this is really intriguing. I found that there were four young girls just three months earlier, little black girls, burned up in an arson in a house in a, the same county, about 10 miles away. Both of those cases are unsolved, and I, I'm real suspicious as to what's going on. So I'm heavily involved uh, with a lot of people on the internet, um, with these six young girls that were all, all six of them murdered four years ago. So I'm working on that. Um, and I, I, I wrote my first novel, uh, which is uh, a big deal to me. I, I got it uh, up on Amazon a couple months ago. Um, House Secrets. Uh, if I can just plug that. Just a, of course, yeah. Okay. Um, that comes through, but it's House Secrets. And it has to do um, with my... You know, the main character is kind of based on what I did with the bikers. And um, there's, you know, it's fictional, but it's kind of based on what I did. So trying to pump my book and can't wait to write the next one. How many books have you got now? Well, that's that's the only one that's published. I'm working on another one that has to do with the death of two elderly women who were molested and murdered by a guy that I never could arrest. I knew who it was, spent a lot of time with him, but I just could never make the arrest. I'm talking an 85-year-old woman and like a 96-year-old oh. woman, blue-haired old ladies. He had a fascination with them. Oh. Um, so that's my next story. And it's, uh, it's just in the outline stage right now. Well, huge thank you for coming on, Perry. We've got all your links in the chat, and we'll put them below this video. Appreciate um, that. Really wish you lots of luck with your work going forward, especially this um, the film regarding sex trafficking to raise public yeah. awareness. Yeah. Um, if I can just have another couple of minutes. Yeah, go for I, it. I, I've been trying for a couple of years to put together a, a trafficking film to show how easily it is to be abducted. Um, and I had a couple of filmmakers, but you know they always want money. So I tried to do it myself and I found some volunteers to play the roles and that kind of thing. And I found some great locations. Um, 
so I'm looking for, uh, uh, you know, an indie filmmaker to do just a little 20, 30 minute film um, to put this together. Um, and my daughter who lives in uh, Kansas City went to college with a girl who was almost ab abducted this last weekend mm. in, uh, in Kansas City. She um, had a little gathering at her apartment. She walked another girl out to the Uber and to make sure she got in the car and was gone safely. And as soon as the car took off, some guy grabs her. What? And said, you're going with me. And this just happened a few days ago. And this is a friend of my daughter's. Uh, so she would be like late 20s, 28, 29 years old. Um, and this guy tried to take her. Fortunately, she had a sounding device, a siren type thing on her keychain. She sounded that and kicked the guy and was able to break loose. And it scared him enough that he let go. And she got the key into the front door and, and got back into the complex. So it's out there. And it happens in a number of ways. I, Working undercover narcotics, you meet so many prostitutes and and, and people addicted to drugs. And so many of those girls that fall into that world uh, were basically, they were being trafficked. They had pimps um, and it's all over. And even this little town that I live in, I've had a couple of gals that have uh, almost been trafficked when they've gone to other cities here in the last few years. So it's a huge problem, huge problem. Well, we Just really- like, like Kevin was saying. We really thank you for raising awareness of that, Perry. It's so important. Huge thank you for coming on, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Well, thank you. I enjoyed being on, and thanks for having me. Well, thank you very Cheers. Bye-bye. Right. That was absolutely fascinating as well. From Jean Bonnet to his, you know, a friend almost trafficked at the weekend. Good grief. It is absolutely everywhere. All right, so we're going to bring Ed Opperman on now. And um, let's get him in. I have had to contain myself. I've been on the verge of sneezing a few times. Come down with a little hay fever allergies today. But I did wake up in time to do the streams. All right, let's find Ed. Scroll through here. Whoops. Pressed the wrong thing there, didn't I? Let's see. Scroll. So we are back up to over 100 watching simultaneously on Patreon. That happened for the first time last week. Huge thank you, guys. Let me just... Scroll through again, see if, I, see if I can locate Ed. I did see him earlier. Where are we? Right, must be on page four. Oh, got him. Here we go. He's on the last page. Invite onto the screen. We hit 114 at the peak last week, according to Snap. And we're at 103 right now. So Ed has been on the channel before. It was over a year ago. I was on his podcast years ago, just telling him about my Sheriff Joe Arpaio jail story. 
And um, hey, Ed, how's it going, man? Hey, Sean, how's it going? Yeah, good to see you. You too. Just, you just want to tell people who are watching who are not familiar with your work a little bit about you and what led to your work. Oh boy. Well, uh, let's see. I'm a private investigator, a digital forensic investigator. Um, wrote a book called How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. Uh, I host a radio talk show. I host um, five nights a week, Monday to Friday, AM, FM radio in California, Nevada, uh, Utah, and Florida. I'm also on Spreaker.com. You can find me on Spreaker. Uh, where I, I play repeats every night. I play Sean's repeat every month. You guys are going to to catch his repeats, the most popular shows we have. Uh, and also, too, I got a Patreon. So the Operant Report Patreon, I put up eight hours of new content there every month. And all the links will be in the description box below the video, and the mods can put any links into the live chat right now. So you're going to pick up on the JonBenet Ramsey stuff. Well, no, actually, my story is about the Hunter Biden laptop. Okay. okay. <laughs> but no, but it starts off with uh, John Mark Carr from the John Bonet Ramsey case. Oh wow! It's a it's a it's a trip. <laughs> We're going on a ride. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right? I'm not as calm as your previous guest. We're going on a ride today. <laughs> now, um, by the way, too, uh, your previous guest, Mr. Freeman, or, or Officer Freeman, uh, but it, um. He's he's onto something there with the uh, the sex thing and the garage because that's the exact same reporting from Stephen Singular, uh, who again is up there in Boulder too, and, and he, he does excellent work. So I can confirm that as far as that goes. Oh yeah, Hunter Biden laptop. Okay, uh, what I'm going to tell you is largely unreported, uh, but you can find all these shows on, on my Patreon and on my Spreaker channel. Uh, it starts out. Um, and around 2006, let me put my notes, around 2006, there's a report on the news about, uh, what's his name, uh, John Mark Carr, right? That he's uh, confessing to the murder of uh, John Bonet Ramsey up there. He's in Thailand or something like that. They're going to bring him back. He had these other charges against him about uh, he had some pornography on a laptop. And uh, they had the laptop, but the cops sold the laptop at a yard sale. Okay. <laughs> they sold the evidence. Okay, against oh, yeah, man. That's a fact, bro. Can you believe it? And John Mark Carr, this character has been dancing between the raindrops his whole life. Okay. So when he comes on the news, this is 2006, right? There weren't a lot of guys doing like internet investigations. So I was able to get his email address and then get an online profile of the guy. And I found some information about him on Usenet, Walt Usenet. And he had created these profiles on there where he was describing himself as a Christian counselor. And he was looking, yeah, yeah. And he was looking to counsel preteen girls. Oh, I know. He needed somebody to talk to. Come on, Sean, let's give him the benefit of the doubt for now. Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. I know. Can you imagine, man? So I see this stuff, and I was involved in something. I forget what it was in my life I was doing at the time. It's probably my divorce and custody problem. Uh, but I didn't want to get too consumed in this. So I turned it over to some friends at, in the media uh, who ran with it. And then I, I sent it to the Boulder cops, too, by the way. I sent it to them, uh, and I didn't hear back from them, so I, I put it in an envelope. They had a sign for it. I sent it again with a cover letter explaining everything, what I had found and what it was about. And I got a call from this guy. He says, well, can you explain to me what this is about? So I read him the cover letter, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you know? But anyway, the fact is uh, I always kept my eye on John Mark Carr after that because he was such a creepy guy, and I knew he was getting away with a lot of stuff. 
Years later, around 2010, I see a story in the news about a young woman named Samantha Spiegel. She was 19 years old at the time. And uh, what happened was she was getting a restraining order against John Mark Carr because he was making threats against her and he was making threats of sexual exploitation to children in emails, okay, specifically. So I said, who is this Samantha Spiegel? I got to get a hold of her and get her on my show and interview her. Not at the time. I didn't have a show at the time, but she always stuck in the back of my head. A few years after that, I get a hold of By the way, remember, to, oh, I, okay, I'll tell you this in order. So I bring her on my show about five years after that, about 2015, right? She comes on the show and she tells me the whole story about her relationship with John Mark Carr. And what he wanted her to do was, he wanted her to help him uh, kidnap a bunch of little girls, John Benet Ramsey's age, and have a little cult of little girls that would worship John Mark Carr, okay? So it's a fascinating story, okay? Uh, about her relationship with Carr. He's a super creepy guy. There's a lot more to this guy than people realize. There's also a connection between John Mark Carr and the poly class murderer, uh, David Allen. Um, Mark David Allen, I think his name is, the one who killed poly class. There's a connection between Carr and Allen, and I know there is because Samantha Spiegel was in communication with both of them, okay? I bring Spiegel on the show. We talk about Carr. At the end of the interview, she blurts out this thing about how she was in a, an abusive S&M relationship with Dr. Keith Abloh, the Fox News contributor. And I says, hold on. I says, wait a second. <laughs> I, I says, has this been reported anywhere else? And she goes, no, I'm telling you this for the first time in the world. Wow. So I said, well, okay, well, hold on, okay. <laughs> I don't want to go to, you know, I don't want to get sued by Dr. Keith Avalon, Fox News. So we actually bleeped it out of the show, okay? We bleeped it out of the show. And you can hear she's talking about an abusive relationship she had with this guy. Now the story is this, when she, uh, in 2010, when she came out with this restraining order, uh, she was contacted by Fox News and they interviewed her. Then she gets a call from Dr. Keith Avalon and she thinks, oh, this is great. I've had a rough life. Dr. Keith Abbo is offering me treatment and therapy to help me, right? Well, I forget what the exact quote was, but the first thing he said to her when she picked up the phone was, are you a dirty little girl or are you a dirty little horse? Something to that effect, okay? This is where Abbo's head is. Oh. I know. I forgot to mention this. Uh, Spiegel's connection to Carl was that um, she was nine years old at a Catholic school in San Francisco and John Mark Carr was a teacher's assistant in that school. So when she saw him on TV, remember now, she's only about 15 years old at, at that time. And that's when she contacts him and they get into this relationship where he wants her to help him kidnap little girls. But, you know, poor Samantha Spiegel doesn't have any luck. You know, she goes on Fox News and who's the next one she meets is this creep, uh, Dr. Keith Abbott, all right? So after the show, I contact Spiegel and I says, you know, if what you tell me about Ablo is true, we got a really good lawsuit here. You know me, Sean. I'm always looking out for things. <laughs> always looking out. Okay, I got my hand in everything. Um, so she lays out all the evidence she has against Ablo. Emails, text messages. I see all the content here, all the stuff. It was the, the, the biggest crime against Samantha Spiegel uh, 
was that they had gotten into an argument over the phone. She was in San Francisco. He was in Massachusetts. They had gotten into a fight over the phone. And Ablo contacted the police in San Francisco and had her committed to a mental institution, okay? Involuntary committed. And then when she came back out, they went right back into their SM relationship where, quote unquote, I want to slap your vagina with a knife. Okay? This is content that I read, all this content oh. I read between these two. All right? And that's a, some of the tamer stuff, okay? There's all kinds of stuff, her getting tattoos and piercings and all kinds of stuff, his nicknames and crazy things and tattoos on him. So now you can see, okay, you, you probably didn't even know this part, but okay. Um, we try and put together a lawsuit, right, uh, against Dr. Keith Apple. In fact, the attorney thought it was such a great suit. He says, Ed, I'm gonna fly her down to Beverly Hills and, and we're gonna sign her up. This is a great case. Uh, you know, this poor girl has been through hell, okay? Even before John Mark Carr, even before him and before Ablo, she's had a life of hell, her and her sister. I became very close friends with both of them. And they've both been on my show telling different stories. Uh, but basically they were born, um, their mother was a street prostitute, a street corner walking prostitute drug addict who gave birth to these kids. But somehow these kids wound up in very, very wealthy homes with trust funds and mansions, okay? Very suspicious uh, circumstances about all that. And I believe these kids were sold to these families uh, who then allowed them to just be abused and raped them. Uh, what uh, what there was a lot of statutory rape going on, she said, mm. my whole life, okay? Heartbreaking situation with these. Yeah, I tag it involved in these crazy. Anyway, so we couldn't, you know, she's back and forth. She doesn't want to do the lawsuit. She does. She's afraid. She's not afraid. Uh, about a year goes by to around 2016. And this is around the time of the Stormy Daniels was hitting the news and Michael Cohen and all that kind of stuff. And she gets back to me. She says, Ed, I'm ready to go ahead with the lawsuit. Let's do it. So I contact the lawyer again, Keith M. Davidson. You know, he advertises on my show as my client. And I says, hey, Keith, man, she's ready to go. But Keith can't get involved in this right now because he's too busy because he's the one that negotiated the Stormy Daniels deal. Okay. As a matter of fact, at one point in all this, I had sent him a, a, a screenshot of some images from her that she was sending me. And it came out all scrambled, you know? So he thought I, I sent him a virus to pack into his computer <laughs> for the media or for Mueller or something, you know, like the SDNY investigation, you know? Everyone was on edge during all that, you know, because I was involved with all those people, all those people, you know. The, my agent was the one who put together the whole deal, the one that got me involved with the Tiger Woods case and stuff. Sarah Palin case. So Keith couldn't do it. I put her in touch with a couple of other attorneys in, um, in New Jersey, actually. But by the way, the same attorneys who were involved in the uh, the Katie Doe case, the, the Trump uh, Epstein lawsuit. We're in touch with them. We found some attorneys up in Massachusetts we can work it out with. We had a whole case for her. Unfortunately, uh, because of uh, her emotional problems, uh, we couldn't get results in that case, but a, a good settlement in that case. But there were two other people we ran across the way who did get a very good settlement. And all of my information from that original, my original investigation is what was used to get Keith Avil's license taken away from him. Wow. Right. So at least you have that kind of satisfaction, right? And uh, he was doing stuff, man. 
He was getting ketamine and all these kind of date rape drugs and giving it to these young women under fake names. It was just a, if you, a lot of this stuff is online about him. It's online, you're still fine. A lot of crazy stuff. This guy was a wild man. His sexual relationship with these, it's slapping him around the room and stuff like that, just horrible. But no, he had a belt with a skull on it that he would whip him with the skull, according to these witnesses. Victims. Did he never? Did he get no criminal charges? No criminal. They say it over and over again. Oh, he lost his license, but there were no criminal charges. Mm. Oh yeah. Let me check my notes here and see what comes next. If I'm leaving anything out. Hey, what a story! Whoops. Get back in there. He was deemed an immediate and serious threat to the public. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, yeah. that guy was a serious piece of work, man. That caused him to lose his license. Okay. Did, did you get any blowback for that from him? No, not a peep. If anything, I, I probably will start getting it now that I'm talking about the whole thing about the, the connection to the Hunter Biden laptop because I know a lot of these guys that are involved in the whole thing, okay? And personal, that I've known for years, since the 80s, okay? But, you know, I don't know. I just do this anyway. <laughs> it's a great story. I got all the, I got all the interviews I got with Spiegel and her sister and on my Patreon. I got an interview with all also too. There's a, a couple of free sections in there too. You can get um, stuff with Dan O'Hanks, who also was involved in the John Mark Carr case, and also knew Spiegel, who's a big private investigator. Dan O'Hanks is a famous guy, uh, incredible, does incredible work. Um, and uh, I also too. Uh, well, we'll get into the Hunter Biden laptop deal. Okay. For some reason, you can only imagine Hunter Biden winds up going to live with Dr. Keith Ablett. After, you know after, after he had been exposed. Yeah, like pretty much. Yeah. No, no, no. no. The, the laptop hadn't leaked out yet. No, the laptop hadn't leaked out yet. Okay. He goes to live with, with the Abel, right? And they're living together. And I'm, I'm assuming because they have a lot of similar interests. Okay. One theory could be that Abel's treating him for his problems and his addictions. Another theory could be, hey, man. We're having fun. <laughs> We're both into the same stuff here. So it's great to meet you. What else could it be? What do you think, Sean? What do you think caused these two to live together? They're both more rich than than uh, Earth. Water finds its own level. Exactly. There you go, man. Because you know? they don't have to live together. They both got money. Hunter Biden's loaded, man. You know, $125 million from the Chinese. It goes out of business in a week. You know? Jesus Christ. How come I don't fall into a deal like that? Yeah. <laughs> With John Kerry's son is doing the same exact thing. We got all the emails. Let me see what they're doing. Okay, so the story hits the fan. Uh, Hunter Biden, he, he drops off his computer with this guy. Uh, this, what's his name? John Mark. I got to find these other notes from when I first did this. By the way, if people want to check out, I did this whole uh, story too on a, a Truanon with Brace and Liz. Uh, I told this whole story over there too, and also too with Pierce Redmond. Oh, uh, John Paul Mac Isaac, the owner of the, the Mac Shop. In Wilmington, Delaware, right? Part of this whole thing that perked up my ears was um, a bunch of reports. When, when, when the things were hitting the fan for Hunter Biden about this laptop, well, where'd the laptop come from? Well, he left it at this repair shop in, in Delaware, right? Everybody does that, right? Everywhere. <laughs> okay, right, right. You got a laptop full of sex pictures of yourself, you know, you just leave, you know, who cares, right? And, you know, Isaac's story is that a guy claiming he was Hunter Biden came in with these uh, equipment and he dropped it off. Some were water damaged, some weren't, you know. It's his story. While he was interrogated, he let these four reporters come into his uh, little shop there one day. And he was under siege, you know. 
And they let these four reporters come and they grilled him. They grilled him. And one of these reporters sent me a raw, unedited tape of that grilling. Okay. And he says, Ed, you got to hear this, man. The story doesn't hash out. Every time you ask him about the chain of custody of this laptop and where it came from and where it went, how to get to Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, you know, and what, what what's going on? And as soon as you hit that, he starts no commenting. So they sent me this whole time, entire raw tape. I put up, it's on my Patreon too, in a free section on it. You can find it for free. Okay. But you can hear he has trouble uh, coming up with the, the exact chain of custody of how he came into possession of this laptop for real and when he turned it over to the FBI and when he turned it over to Rudy Giuliani. Now, if you Google this story and look forward to the major news, what you're going to find is, well, there was a second laptop. There was a second laptop that was um, recovered in a raid of Dr. Keith Ablo's home. Okay? <laughs> right. that's, the, that's the official story. <laughs> The DEA got wind that Apple was up to no good, maybe because of Ed Oppen's reporting, right? They were listening. And, and the wiretaps, they still got on me, right? <laughs> they, they never removed those wiretaps from my phone. They never got around to it. That's one theory. But here's what really happened. Here's what really happened. And I got to straighten the guy's mouth. Okay. Bradley Birkenfeld right, wrote a book called Lucifer's Banker. All right? And Bradley Birkenfeld is an interesting guy. He was he was working with Swiss Bank, Swiss banking, right? And um, he had a little problems, got into the jackpot there, and became a in fact, actually went to jail. Okay. But he gave up information about Swiss banking irregularities, money laundering, all kinds of problems. You can only imagine what goes on Swiss banking, right, Sean? Okay. Wrote a book, names all the names. I mean, names all the Democrat names. He doesn't name names many Republican names. <laughs> he names people he doesn't like. He's got an agenda. But he gets a $125 million reward as a whistleblower. He's a sharp yeah. guy, Sean. Yeah, Sean, he's a sharp guy. He's a sharp guy. Okay, he's a sharp guy. I'll give you that. So, I get word that what happened was there was a, a, a book signing, a book launching party for Mr. Birkenfeld. And I guess it was a virtual book signing party because he's not allowed to come to the United States anymore. <laughs> he lives in Malta. <laughs> okay. But he count count is 125, you know, in Malta. You know? I, and I actually asked him, I said, well, now you got all this money. What do you do now? Why do you better keep yourself busy? And I see what he does. He inserts himself into a lot of stuff. And uh, what happened was at his book signing launch party, who was there? Uh, Rudy Giuliani was there. Uh, Bernie Carrick. Okay, you know who Bernie Carrick is? No. Bernie Carrick was the former police commissioner. Well, first he was a former uh, corrections department commissioner uh, in New York City. Then he was the police commissioner. You could see him on that tape on nine one one when Rudy's get at Rudy and he said, "Well, we're going to go over here." And Carrick whispers in his ears, and Rich says, okay, we're not going to go there. <laughs> okay. Now, Carrick's an interesting guy, okay, because he was the chief of police, uh, police commissioner of New York City, but he's never been a cop. He never took a cop test and never uh, earned a badge and never, you know, earned a gun. He never was never served as a police officer, served at the top. You got to look up a story about a guy named Lawrence Ray, okay? You probably know this story. By the way, Kirk went to prison too for tax evasion, all kind of shenanigans too. You know what he did, man? He stole an apartment 
This guy donated an apartment for 9-11 victims to go after cops and firemen to go and relax in this condo in, the low, in, in lower Manhattan while they're out there saving lives at 9-11. And Kara takes and he steals the apartment and keeps mm. it for himself. Okay. But better than that, look up the story of Lawrence Ray, the Sarah Lawrence uh, pimp, you know? Uh, what happened was, now, Lawrence Ray was, I talked to Lawrence Ray too, but on the phone. Uh, Lawrence Ray was um, Bernie Carrick's best man. He paid for Bernie Carrick's okay? And then he exposed Bernie Carrick, he set up Bernie Carrick and got Bernie Carrick sent to prison. Okay, so since then there's bad blood between the two. Well, that's often happens, right? So what happens is, uh, Lawrence Ray goes to live with his daughter in her dorm at Sarah Lawrence University. He starts uh, uh, manipulating and brainwashing these, these young dorm girls and telling them, them they owe him money, okay? And he winds up sending them out to be escorts. And some of them are still living with him. He's in prison, he's in jail right now, facing charges, okay? But uh, some of them are, are still with him. That's Bernie Carrick's best friend, best man at the Water finds its own level, uh, to quote Sean Atwood. <laughs> okay, so Bernie Carrick is there, right? Bernie Carrick was there on January 6th to the insurrection too, on stage. Booty Giuliani's there. Uh, John Kirikawa, the CIA agent, you know him? The CIA whistleblower. I've had him on my show too. John Kirikawa seems like a straight shooter, um, but he's traveling the surface with these political operatives and these goons, you know? And uh, uh, anyway, man, we're going to get back to him. Okay, at the end, because the little cooks co around back to Kirikawa. Bo Deedle is there. Bo Deedle is a, um, a New York City private investigator. He ran for the Senate. I've known Bo Deedle since I was 25 years old. We were very good friends at one time in our life. And we're no longer friends because of my position on police shootings of innocent people. Like, I'm against it. He's for it. <laughs> so, we, you know, we differ on that now, you know. We've gone our separate ways. But if you've ever seen the movie with Harvey Keitel called... Um, uh, uh, bad lieutenant. Oh okay. yeah, all-time fave that one. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. That's what, that's what did. Wow. That's what did. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's his. That's his case with the nuns. Okay. Bodil is in that movie, by the way, too. He's in the movie at the beginning. He's the bookie at the beginning, taking bets with, with the cops. Okay. And um, also too, I'll tell you another funny story about that one real quick, and we'll move on. Uh, is that scene with Harvey Keitel with the two girls in the car where he starts? Uh, okay, uh, that's it. You know who that girl is in the car? That's his babysitter in real life. That was her first acting role. Wow. She's his babysitter. Wow. The whole scene was ad lib. They didn't know what he was going to do. That's a oh, true story. shit. <laughs> that's a true story, man. Anyway, so that's Bo Deedle. Okay. Bo Deedle is, is a, I don't know. At one time in our lives, we were really good friends, you know. Um, and we looked alike too, so people thought we were brothers, you know. We would go hang out and stuff like that. And he helped me a lot in my life, my career, and things. Uh, but anyway, at this book launch party, you got Bo Deedle, you got Birkenfeld, you got Bernie Carrick, John Kirikawa, the CIA agent, Rudy Giuliani, right? And they get word. I think it was from uh, Keith Ablo's brother, okay. Because what happened was, and the reason I know all this is because when I started hearing about this story, I says, you know what? That book, Lucifer's Banker, sounds like a fascinating book. I got to get Birkenfeld on the show and ask him all about his book. <laughs> so I bring him on the show. And even before the interview, I, I asked him, hey, what's going on with that laptop thing? What's going on with it? 
right? And he goes, oh, let me tell you the whole thing. Me and Bo went down there. Uh, we heard that Keith Ambo wanted $2 million for the laptop. So me and Bo went down there. I said, oh, Bo went with you, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah, Bo was with me. The interview starts. Bo disappears from the store. Bo's gone. <laughs> no mention of Bo after that. He won't say Bo did his name after that. I don't blame him. Okay. But, okay, here's, here's what Birkenfeld tells me. He says, we're at this book launching party. We get word that Keith Abloh has Hunter Biden's laptop, and he wants $2 million for it. Okay? Now, just stop and think there. Keith Abloh has this laptop, and, and he put a price tag on this laptop. Okay? There's information out there. I know that gets bought and sold. Things going around. The Stormy Daniels deal, right? The price tag was put on that of $130,000. That's pretty good, right? But Keith Abloh said this is worth $2 million. There's something on that laptop that we haven't seen yet. Okay. So Bo and Birkenfeld fly down to Massachusetts. They knock on the door. Mr. Ablo, we want to talk to you. <laughs> Somehow now negotiations break down, okay, on the laptop deal. And they leave empty-handed without the laptop. But now you hear the official story again. What happened? Well, the next day. The DEA comes with a search warrant in their hand and says, we're here to search your house and we're here to search this pharmacy too. They're probably looking at another dirt focus. Okay, so somewhere, somehow, somebody was able to call up a judge and get a search warrant and call up a friendly DEA guy and say, go down and search this house. And they get possession of the laptop. Oh. Now, working, yeah, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, this is the real stuff, man. You know? <laughs> You can, you, hear, you can hear this right from Birkenfeld's mouth. He was right there. He, he, no one is talking about two million bucks for this laptop. People think that the DEA got it and Bo got it back. Okay. So what do you call it now? Uh, Bo gets the, the laptop back from the DEA. But Birkenfeld says, and what I think happened was, I think that the information on that laptop somehow got copied onto the laptop that's over at John Mac Isaac's uh, uh, laptop store over there in Delaware. And I said to him, I says, well, you know, if someone's going to pull that off, wouldn't like Giuliani have a judge who'd be able to do that? And he goes, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> okay, but it's the logical chain of sequences to me. seems that somebody on that team that was in there trying to get the laptop got the laptop because <laughs> they wanted that laptop. Now, remember the, the figure of $2 million placed on this laptop. John Kirikawa was in the news just recently because Kirikawa has a, a, a conviction, felony conviction. And I think he can't get his CIA pension because of his conviction. So he's at dinner with Rudy Giuliani. And I think it's Costello, one of uh, Giuliani's lawyers. This is a guy named Costello. I believe it was him. And Kirkawa says, well, I was asking about a pardon from Mr. Trump. And he says, well, we get your pardon. It's $2 million. Okay, and he's in the paper saying it's a newspaper, mainstream newspapers. But what I think really happened was is the discussion. They said, hey, get us that laptop and we get your pardon. Okay, $2 million laptop. That's how what I think because Kurt Cow is the kind of guy, I had him on the show, he's the kind of guy that could break into that house and get that laptop. <laughs> he can tunnel in there, man, you know? The guy was present too. Anyway, so that's pretty much the whole twisting and turning of John Mark Carr to Dr. Keith Ablow. A little couple of turns here with Richard Allen Davis and Bo Deal and the bad lieutenant. But it ends up with the, that's, that's the real story of what's going on with the laptop. So what was so incriminating on the laptop? Well, there's a lot of good stuff on that laptop. You know, is it worth $2 million? I don't think so. There's something they're holding back. Somebody has the really good stuff. Because if you look at those emails, how much money was being tossed around by these guys, man, 125 with the Chinese. This is real, this is serious, real money, okay? So there's something on there we haven't seen that, that I can 
promise you. Okay. So how much criminal activity is Hunter involved in? Well, all those payoffs, man. The guy was in partnership with uh, John Kerry's son, okay? And they, they went around the country. When, when This is when uh, uh, Biden was vice president. These two went around the world and visited, I think, like 100 countries. It's an insane number of countries with their hands out, getting contracts. Some of these emails say, okay, I'm going to get 50000 a month, and the big guy is going to get 100000 a month. Who's the big guy? Now, clearly, Biden is not intimidated by this, that all this is out there, because what he, he just gave Kerry another job in the White House. Some kind of czar, I forget what it is, energy czar, some nonsense, that they can scrape up more money, uh, have billions out of it. So, and by the way, too, uh, Kerry's son was so offended by Biden's thievery and greed that they, they cut the company up. They said, wow. <laughs> this guy anyway, he's too much. You know? So there's definitely something, this blackmail stuff on that laptop that is in somebody's possession. Who's happy to keep it? So I've written extensively about CIA drug trafficking, and we've got a question from a viewer for you as to whether Hunter is involved in drug trafficking. I have no evidence of that. There was that one article that said that he, he was paying girls that were being trafficked, which is, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't put a lot of stock in some of these articles anyway, you know, because my own cases that I've worked on are in the news and they get things all wrong. I don't know what they're talking about. So, and uh, I've been contacted by the press. In fact, I'm going to be in a book right now about my involvement with the, uh, the Biden, uh, the Epstein case coming up uh, by Thomas Bolshaw, who was a uh, uh, contributor for, Good morning, America, right after Epstein died. Uh, he's going to be talking about that in there. So, man, and this. And what was the scam that the Bidens pulled on the Ukraine? You know what? I don't really have all the details on that, other than uh, Biden, Hunter Biden got a job there in the energy, or in some energy company, you know, and uh, got a sweetheart deal from that. But he was doing that everywhere. I don't think that Ukraine was anything uh, unique uh, to all these other countries he was doing this in. Terry has asked, do the Bidens own an island by the Epstein Island? That's interesting. I have no idea about that. I know that Trump owns an island down there, and I know that uh, Geraldo Rivera used to own an island down there. Geraldo is another guy who uh, seems to be up to his neck and all this kind of stuff, too. Uh, Geraldo was supporting Maxwell recently, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, I, I did a whole show about that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, is he, are people backing him up on that, or is he losing support? What? I don't know, man. It doesn't seem like uh, he cares even. You know, he's got this, this, this thick, you know. But I did a whole thing on him from, from the Young Lords and all how all those Young Lords, because, uh, uh, you, know, you know, he used to be an anti-poverty lawyer, you know, when he was a young man. And he was one of the spokespeople for the, the street gang, the Young Lords, um, more like the Black Panther Party, but for Puerto Ricans in the Bronx. I'm from the Bronx. So he's very familiar with these characters. And all the, the leadership, it's very fascinating. The leadership of that whole group, uh, Felipe Luciano and Pablo Guzman and Geraldo Rivera, all went into the media. Okay, they all went to the media. Another interesting thing about Geraldo Rivera, I wish I had my notes on that, because right? uh, <laughs> I did a whole show on Geraldo recently. Check it out. But Geraldo um, was working for uh, like Nightline 2021 of those shows, right? And one of his co-hosts wanted to do a show about how, the relationship between the Kennedys and Marilyn Monroe. Right, and they squashed the story. It was a breaking story. It was a, oh, it was a great story. They squashed it, and Geraldo got all indignant. Said, "I shall resign from this company because <laughs> I am so, you know, I'm incensed." Okay, me and my island. I'm going to my island. <laughs> okay, and a couple of years later, man, Geraldo was 
a wash in money and cash. He's walking, climbing like boxes of cash. He's got his own helicopter. He bought a newspaper. He bought an island. Oh, look at me. I'm world of it. Because he had some kind of information that made him a billionaire. Wow. Well, at least Montel Williams is speaking out about legali- legalization of cannabis and satisfax and all that kind of stuff. What, what, what else besides marijuana? What was it? Yeah, he's got that spray, hasn't he? Montel, Montel Williams, the cannabis spray and things like that. Do you think that under Biden's presidency, marijuana will become not, you know, down from Schedule 1? You know what, man? That whole thing breaks my heart. Because <laughs> yeah. you know the story. I was facing 15 years of smoking marijuana from Mexico, you know? And now here I am. I got to walk into a store that's making you know, a million dollars a week. You go to Vegas, man, with the wreck marijuana, they all line around the block. Uh, you know, I got friends still in prison for marijuana. Okay, they just got out. They just got out. You know, from from back then, twenty years they did. You know, uh, lives ruined. You know, one guy tried to set me up. He was on the phone trying to set me up before they put him in. You know, so you think, it, so yeah. do you think it will be rescheduled then? The drug under the federal law. I have laws? no idea. I have no idea. And and uh, yeah. I'm I'm against marijuana. I don't think it's a very beneficial for you. Uh, I'm not thrilled with everybody. It's just, it just seems like so many people who I know, especially back in Vegas, who can't quite get their life together, you know. They can't get their driver's license. They can't get their medical insurance. They can't get the one through And they're, they're, well, they got their marijuana. They got their medical card, you know, and it's token away. I know people that are very passionate about that, people that are marijuana users and advocates and do whatever you want. I don't care. Uh, but uh, I also see the downside, too. Like right now, I'm working on this thing. I got the uh, – I moved to Florida, you know, and uh, – I got called in on this litigation down here uh, to locate a witness. The guy's a homeless guy, right? I did find him, okay? He's a homeless heroin addict and has fentanyl there on him and his girlfriend. They're both homeless on fentanyl. So I got him the witness statement down, but now I got him medical insurance. You know, I'm getting him into detox. I'm trying to, right now, today I was working on this, trying to get these guys into detox before I showed up on the Sean Atwood show. <laughs> Well, look, Ed, huge thank you for coming on. It's always a great pleasure. All your links are going to be down there for people to go over and support your work. And uh, we'd love to get you back on, especially to go over you know, the stuff you know about Maxwell and Epstein, get, get more into depth on that. You know what? Uh, I have nothing new on Maxwell or Epstein that nobody else has. You know, everybody's digging around it now. And I'm, but I'm still breaking the ground. I was talking about Matt Gates. okay? I was talking about Matt Gates months ago. Check out my show. I was talking about Matt Gates months ago. Before I started. Really? Yeah. All right. So, yeah. So please go over and check out Ed's show. And um, if you go back many, many years, you'll see my episodes. Back when you had hair. I think you had hair back then. <laughs> I think my eyebrows were a bit bushier back then. <laughs> All right. Cheers, Ed. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Good night. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. So absolutely great guests again. I'm just going to go over the questions now that have come in for me. Um Let's see. So Abe has asked, what's up today, Sean? Mate, you seem a little down, preoccupied. What it is, I've got allergies, hay fever. You know, I I did some shopping today. I came back to the house. I was going to go out and jog. I like to have a jog before I sit here, get the body moving. But um, ended up lying down, felt a bit like allergy ridden. And fortunately, I woke up at five o'clock. I slept for two hours. So I am a bit snivelly. I have been holding a few sneezes in during the live stream (laughs) i've got local honey thanks terry i have got local honey so usually when the sun comes out in the uk the pollen count rises and this lasts for a week or so and then i'm back to normal 
Um, let's see. Verity Love, totally off topic. Consider going to four or more hours. No, Verity. Ash has been pushing for four or more hours. Do you know what it's like sitting for four hours looking at a screen? <laughs> I, um, I know the guests have so much more to say, but <laughs> it is, it is, it is um, hard on my back, rough on my back to sit for four hours looking at a screen. And we keep it punchy. You know, the guests come in, they can see a lot more, they condense it, it keeps it really punchy. And it keeps me on the edge of my street. <laughs> Ash just sent me a message. No, not four hours. Six. Six. Well, I did six on Sunday because Ash had double booked a podcast guest. I did six um, in the studio. That was just six plus hours of filming. It was, a, it was an all-day event to do six hours of filming. Guests arriving, breaks, everything else. That took all day. So um, Amy in Alabama is not ha very happy with this. She thinks that Ash is trying to break me. <laughs> I'm not in my 20s anymore. Let's see, when I could just, you know, work all day long, supercharged. Why the fallout between Trump and Gillian? From 12 step woman, I have no expertise on that. Perhaps that was meant for the previous guest. Sorry, I can't um, answer that. All right, from Tim Wilson, Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey case. Kathleen Zellner, Avery's lawyer, has just released an affidavit that states that Bobby Dassey, the state's key witness and an accomplice, was seen pushing Teresa Holbeck's RAV4. This evidence was known by the state and hidden at the time. If you've not watched Making a Murderer yet on Netflix, it's at the top of the true crime genre. And it was one of the things that really motivated me to start putting videos on YouTube when I was just beginning to ramp the channel up. The channel started in 2007. My dad started the channel. It's been going for 12 years. And I went on True Geordie, Making a Murder came out. And I just put up some videos explaining how people could write Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey because they were inundated with mail. People didn't even put the prison number on it. The mail got sent back to them. Just put up some helpful videos. I ended up doing a series of videos on making a murderer and writing a whole book on the case on making a murderer. And it's so sad that Brendan Dassey, a kid who was snatched out of his school and told, if you just confess to this, you can, we'll let you go home and watch WrestleMania, that the cops pulled this stunt on him because he opened his mouth. He's doing a life sentence. And this is a kid with an IQ of like, I think it was like 70, 80 learning disabilities, absolute tragedy. He should not be in there at all. Not a shred of evidence against him other than what he said. And Stephen Avery as well, he did almost two decades for a crime he hadn't done, was exonerated. The governor had the, the compensation check on his desk. Woman, you know, gets murdered. Who do they bring in? Stephen Avery. Save the state millions. All right, so next one, um, Verity Love. Sean, do you have a manifest for the Elite Express? I don't, actually. I had a lot of people send me things over the years, and um, I don't think I've got that one in the email box. Gigi, did he say a Garad? What is that? I'm not sure. Um, 12 Step, please have Detective Freeman come back on. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. He only scratched the surface of some of his stories there. Um, but, yeah, I'd love to hear what he's going to do with this trafficking video. 12 Step, 
Thank you. I just joined your five bug patrons here. Thank you for that. Um, Sapphire, can we go into more detail about Buraldo and marijuana? So I was talking about um, Montel Williams. Yeah. Okay. I've got it. I've got it. Thank you, 12-step. So please let me know in the live chat right now, put one. If you think that I should do the first three hours of Atwood Unleashed new six-hour length episodes, and Ash, Ash does the second three hours. <laughs> Would you like to see a six-hour out? Yeah, the ones are coming in. Six-hour Atwood Unleashed, three hours, I go to bed. <laughs> Sapphire is putting two. Three hours, I go to bed. And sec next next three hours, Ash <laughs> stays up all night long, all night long, six hours a night, every night. Please, yeah, vote is in. Ash, you committed. Um, JJ, people, <laughs> Ash just commented this has backfired. <laughs> uh, JJ, people need to look into Sinatra's Hollywood connections. In my opinion, like. Tahoe Casino Resort. Are you going to get Charles Bronson on? Thanks, Abe. I did send him some of my books. Plugged his auction. And um, would love to get Bronson on. So we've got a couple of minutes left. And I would love to know what you guys think. If you could just put in the live chat right now what you think of Prince Andrew. Being behind the two new corgi puppies that he's given to the Queen. He's an animal lover, like Ghislaine Maxwell is an animal lover. Like Ghislaine Maxwell loves the oceans. These people, the super predation is all in the past. Can't we just forgive them and accept them back into society? How could you do any wrong if you would give two puppies to help your mother? Cope when her late husband was in hospital. The Queen was given the dogs in February to keep her company in Windsor. While the Duke of Edinburgh was recovering from heart surgery. The pups were bought by Prince Andrew in a bid to cheer his 94-year-old mother up. What a great guy. This comes as royal experts are saying that the Duke of York is trying to rehabilitate himself and get back into the royal fold and promote himself to admiral status despite his brother Charles and Prince William pushing plans for a slimmed-down monarchy. Isn't it crazy that all these super predators, when they're trying to come back into the public eye, immediately release a puppy story or some kind of animal-loving story. Queen Elizabeth turned to these puppies for comfort in the aftermath of her husband's death. The day before Prince Philip's funeral, she drove her two puppies, specially bestowed by Prince Andrew, from the castle to all towards Frogmore Gardens for a walk. The Queen named 
one of them Fergus. After her maternal uncle, Fergus Bose Leon, who died in France during World War I. She named the second M U I C K. Looks like you would pronounce it as muck, muck, but they're claiming that it's pronounced Mick after Loch Mick, a lake on the Barrowmoral Estate in Scotland. A source told the Sun newspaper the Queen did not plan on getting any new dogs as she feared she was getting too old. But it was Andrew, kind hearted Andrew, who surprised his mum with two new puppies when she felt down and alone in the castle after the Duke was taken to hospital. Prince Andrew is now out horse riding yesterday afternoon, doing multiple public appearances after his bid for admiral status failed, but he thinks he's creeping back into the public fold. Yesterday's ride in Windsor has prompted speculation that Andrew is attempting to rehabilitate himself after stepping down from royal duties. <laughs> snap, snap. He's using using a golden pooper scooper. <laughs> oh, thanks for putting that in the chat, Snap. That's the funniest thing I've heard all day. Royal expert Richard Fitzwilliams told the Mail that Andrew would, quote, obviously like to be rehabilitated but must first answer fbi questions on his links to epstein please put in the chat how you feel andrew could be rehabilitated <laughs> andrew's appearance comes after it was suggested that prince charles is attempting to slim down the monarchy in the wake of his father's death and megxit which saw Harry and Meghan trade in royal life for Los Angeles. Charles and William are said to be in agreement that there is absolutely... <laughs> D-wing, D-wing, chop his beep off. Chemical beep. <laughs> Wood chipper. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> Um, Charles and William are in absolute agreement. There is no future place for Prince Andrew in the monarchy. But it seems he can't get that through to his head. <laughs> According to reports. On Saturday, Prince Andrew sat next to the Queen at the funeral before leaving in his new two hundred and twenty two thousand pound bentley almost three hundred thousand dollars well on april 11th he spoke to television cameras outside the royal chapel of all saints at the royal lodge in windsor two days after his father's death he paid tribute to the duke of edinburgh 
was the first time he had directly addressed cameras since the car crash interview on the BBC about his friendship with Jeffrey. The Queen today turns 95, hence my crown, and will spend the day at Windsor Castle with a small bubble of staff due to the pandemic. I wonder if the Corgis will be there with her. Well, what are their names again? Mock, Fergus, and Mock. <laughs> Um, celebrations are going to be subdued after this Queen's strength and stay in her husband's funeral. In a bid to keep Her Majesty company, the family have agreed a rota to visit her in the coming days so that she is not left alone. Princess Anne and Sophie, Countess of Wessex, are reported to be among the Queen's first visitors. Prime Minister Boris Johnson led tributes to the Queen, writing on Twitter, I would like to send my warm wishes to Her Majesty the Queen on her 95th birthday. I have always had the highest admiration for Her Majesty and a service to this country and the Commonwealth. I am proud to serve as her Prime Minister. <laughs> Corgi menus posted to the kitchen wall daily Food cooked from scratch and meeting James Bond. The faithful dogs that have stood beside the Queen for more than 70 years. The corgis have their own menu. Wow. Wow. <laughs> from the moment her father gave her a dog as an 18th birthday present, corgis have been loyal companions for the Queen for more than 70 years. The first corgi was called Susan an 18th birthday present in 1944. She'd vowed not to get any more dogs after Vulcan, a Dash Hund Corgi cross called a Doggy, passed away. It left her with just a single elderly Doggy called Candy. But when Philip was hospitalized, it emerged she had acquired two new dogs. Fergus and Muck, really pronounced Mick. She's had 30 dogs over the years. Her latest coming from Prince Andrew in his attempt to rehabilitate himself. So on, a, on the honeymoon with Philip, ni nipping their ankles, causing the Duke to explain, exclaim bloody dogs, the corgis became well-known fixtures in the royal household. They run into the Queen's room in the morning just before joining her for toast and marmalade. A new corgi menu is typed and posted to the kitchen wall daily. All food cooked from scratch and the supper is served by Her Majesty. The most famous one was Monty, who appeared with his mistress and James Bond star, Daniel Craig, in a sketch for the opening ceremony of the 2012 London Olympics. Prince Philip would say, bloody dogs, why do you have so many? To which the Queen would respond, because they are so collectible, my dear. When Monty passed away at Balmoral in 2012, the Queen went into mourning and the royal standard was lowered to just halfway. Monty was laid to rest in the special corgi cemetery 
They have their own cemetery at Balmoral, beneath a specially commissioned headstone. In 2009, devastated by the loss of two more of her beloved pets to cancer, the Queen decided not to replace the corgis by breeding, as she had done for more than 65 years, but to let her love of her come to a natural end. Life for a royal dog starts each day with a brisk walk, early on with a footman. When the Queen wakes, they dash into her room and accompany her to breakfast, where they yap and jump and leap for slices of toast and marmalade fed to them from the table. Then, there's a daily walk after lunch. Queen in a headscarf, dogs careering through flower beds, ripping up lawns, followed by dinner, dished up by the Queen, if she's free, in highly polished metal bowls. All food is cooked from scratch, causing uproar a few years ago in Balmoral, when the Queen suspected some of the food in the gleaming dog bowls had previously been frozen. How dare! They get frozen food. Now a new corgi menu is typed up and posted to the kitchen wall daily. Former royal chef Darren McGrady, who worked for the Queen for 11 years, said, One day it would be chuck steak, which we boiled and served with finely chopped boiled cabbage and white rice. The next they'd have poached chicken or liver or rabbits shot by William or Harry that we'd clean, cook, debone and chop for the dogs. Not forgetting the special gravy and hot scones, baked daily, served with lashings of butter and crumbled onto the floor by the Queen each afternoon. And if anyone pets them, um, heaven help them. A well-meaning guest was rebuked with, leave them alone, please. They are my dogs. They don't like other people petting them. Can you believe this? This is not a satire of an the crown and brian hoey off of not in front of the corgis a book about life with the royals said nobody is allowed to raise a finger or a voice to any of the dogs they cock their legs and do what corgis do wherever they want on antique furniture and priceless carpets wow which is why the royal staff are armed with blotting paper for mopping up little accidents and soda siphons for squirting to get yapping dogs off juicy ankles. What is going on in this madhouse? Um, the Queen is as quite, you know, she can assert herself at times. But when it comes to her corgis, she is absolutely soppy and thinks that every detail that could make their lives even more luxurious, such as special rubber sold booties booties what designed by the man who invented knife proof vests for the police to protect their paws from the gravel in the on the yard there christmas stockings filled with crackers cakes and a strictly non squeaky toy there are doggy palaces lined up in the corridor outside her majesty's sitting room Smart wooden houses raised off the floor to avoid drafts and filled with soft and daily laundered bedding. When the queen has a, has a dress fitting in the palace, she carries special magnet to pick up the pins to stop the corgis from pricking their paws. She deflees them herself and dispenses cough 
mixture and homeopathic remedies heavily involved in the breeding process. Asked how, given the different heights, corgis and dash ones were able to mate. It's very simple. We have a little brick, was her crisp response. This all started with her as a young girl in Hyde Park with her sister Margaret and a corgi belonging to Viscount Weymouth, who later became the Marquis of Bath. No one knew much about corgis then, other than they were once used to guard cattle and were sufficiently agile to see off wolves. But the princesses were smitten and started to lobby for their own. Juki arrived as the family pet at the York's home, 145 Piccadilly, with a stump of a tail, and he liked to bite politicians. Only when Susan was given to Elizabeth on the 18th birthday by her father did she have her own dog. Susan became the matriarch of the Royal Corgi line, and it was the beginning of decades of dog love affair. She went everywhere. The Queen and Prince Philip went their honeymoon, the bedchamber, savaging people, including the royal clockwinder Leonard Hubbard. She left an inch-long gash in his leg. And guardsman Alfred Edge ended up in hospital after his wound went septic. Oh, my God. This is, this is supposedly true. Prince Philip, preferred Labradors, was fighting a losing battle against royal corgis ever since. Susan went up to the great dog basket in the sky, but the legacy lived on. Her grandson, Whiskey, tore the seat from a guard's officer's trousers. <laughs> Corgis attacked Her Majesty's favourite German designer, Karl Ludwig Reis. And in 89, Chipper, the favourite doggy, was ripped to shreds by one of the Queen Mother's Corgis. What? In this is like a Monty Python sketch. In 91, the queen needed three stitches in her hand when she tried to stop a corgi fight at Windsor Castle. In 2003, Thurrow had to be put down after being savaged by an English bull terrier owned by Princess Anne. So there you have it. Prince Andrew trying to rehabilitate himself and the complete and true backstory of the Queen's corgis and doggies. I had, I didn't even know what a doggy was. Huge thank you. We've gone into overtime a little bit. Got excited um, reporting on, on the dogs. So hope to see you guys next week. Huge thank you for supporting what we're doing. Not just are you supporting the production of Atwood Unleashed, but the four out four nights a week multi-hour content and um, we are getting approached by some sponsors now as well so it's great you know that we are getting the resources built up to keep the streams and the true cop um, Triumph podcasts rolling four nights a week hope you guys enjoyed this evening it's been lovely seeing the chat how engaged you are very funny at times I think it was Snap who put the um, thing that made me laugh the most earlier on about the pooper scoopers. That was great. So I'm going to retire now, get get some um, fruit salad down me, get this uh, hay fever thing beat, and um, got True Crime Podcast going out tomorrow night. It is Posh Pete Part 3 with David Macmillan. 
then we've got Ron Swanson Friday night. I think we've got Phil Chalmers bringing in Delmas again, but he does have another serial killer coming on again. Then um, thank you to Ash for doing a brilliant job as usual. And you know, I might I might put a couple of veggie sausages in, poly walnuts. I'm not gonna hit up my usual four to six, but maybe maybe two or three on top of the fruit salad. Um, <laughs> thanks to the moderators, thanks to the viewers, thank you to everyone. So I'm gonna end this broadcast right now. Take care out there. Cheers from Surrey. <laughs>